This episode of the Kettle and Cup podcast is brought to you by us, as we still don't have any sponsors. But you know what? I guess that means we don't have any commercials either. You want to be a sponsor, you can do so. And I will let people know how to get a hold of you, what your product is, what the services that you offer. I'll let them know everything about you. Contact me. Be a sponsor of the podcast. We'll get your name out there to the couple hundred people who listen every month. That would be pretty awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. All right, let's get started. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Kettle and Cup podcast. My name is Alex. Okay, on this episode of the KMC podcast, I get together with Derek Romnerace for an interview. I, I think it was a pretty good talk. I usually do some editing of the interviews. I mean, nothing too big or too drastic, just uh, the course of conversation generally stays the same. I'll sometimes you know, take out the vocal fillers like um and uh and but. Maybe I'll remove some of the gaps in conversation or technical issues. I did very little editing this time around. I really wanted to give listeners, you, the listeners, a real slice of time with Derek. And I hope you get a good idea of the man inside the musician, the artist, the businessman. It gets a little heavy, yeah. It gets a little raw. But I think the guy that most people see on the stage was left at the door here in the house. And the real Derek Romnerace was here in the basement for a little while. I mean, I'm no psychologist. Is this an exercise in futility? I don't, I don't know, I guess. I can't say there's no... I can't say. I just can't say. I mean, there's no... There's no explanations and no apologies. It's just two guys talking about music and kids and maladies and the business. You know, all that kind of fun stuff. I, I think it's a pretty good interview. After the interview is the KNC wrap-up with Lori and I. So check that out, too. Drop me a line if you'd like. Let me know what you think of the podcast, this one or the previous one with Kyle Martin, or the one before that with Barb Steinhorst. You can catch us at facebook.com slash kettle and cup. One more thing. You should be aware that I recorded this some time ago. We do talk about Ragged Roots, which is an upcoming music event. We don't really get into much detail as to who's performing in the 2018 Ragged Roots Festival. You'll catch that all online. Also, he does mention a few gigs coming up, and they've already passed. So, sorry you missed them. But don't miss Ragged Roots. So, okay. Here's my interview with Derek Romnerace. I was going to ask you this before, and I probably should have, but do you, where, what do you, uh, 
what all you want to talk about? Um, well, everything. Also, yeah. Is there anything you don't want to talk about? No. Okay. No, I just thought it'd be good maybe to. I have so much in my head that to narrow my focus down is. I'll do what I can to help you wrangle that sometimes in. Sometimes good. I also just had a wisdom tooth yanked out today. Really? Yeah, wasn't planned, but. Wow. And uh, you're performing tonight. Well, well part, you're gonna, gonna just gonna do go the over open there mic. And play, yeah. Yeah. We'll see how whether I sing too much or not. We'll see. Did they put you out to take that tooth? Uh, no, they just drove some spikes into my jaw and numbed me up. Probably in ninety two, maybe ninety one. I had a tooth break on me, and I went into the dentist, and I'm like, just pull it, because there was really no no saving it. And I've never been put out for anything. I've never been out. The only surgery I ever had was a local. And when it comes to to oral surgeries, I refuse to be put out because I just don't I don't trust dentists to begin with. And let alone to think about the fact that with whatever they're doing, they also have to monitor my breathing while I'm put out. I don't know. I guess I'm just being <laughs> it's just me being distrustful, I guess. My daughter's going under for the her uh she has a an oral surgery coming up on friday actually and i just had to take her in for a pre-op um physical and then but yeah they're gonna put her under really i'm 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 actually out of town and i'm freaking out about it actually because i feel like i need to be there so it sounds like it's the first time she's been under yeah yeah it is pretty nerve-wracking when uh when my daughter was in the hospital she underwent a lot of surgeries but every time it was still it was still pretty scary yeah, you know, because they give they give you as the parent all the paperwork, and they in those in those situations they sit down with you and they're like, "This has all the to happen. possible yeah side yeah. effects and yep yep problems but, that could occur and underneath it though they're like, "But this has to happen." So here you go, and you're just like, "Okay, well, there is the chance that this bad stuff could happen, and she has no say in it." So I guess we're gonna do this. And you're on needles and pins the whole time. Well, and kind of like, I mean, this is obviously on a much smaller scale, but I mean, the plan wasn't for me to have a tooth pulled out today, but the opportunity to do it came up and the guy was like, I could do it. Otherwise, they refer me to a um, uh, an oral surgeon and that's way more money than I would have had to pay. And, uh, you know, the uh, I'm in pain, but compared to the pain, <laughs> you know like it yeah. this will dissipate soon and I'll never have to worry about it again so it's yeah. it's a worth it how is that open mic down at the vault I haven't been yet I've only seen snippets I've uh I've tried to go a couple of times and uh one time I just got held up by my kids and delayed and by the time I could have gone the other people I was going to go with couldn't go and I was just in a bad mood and it was like well you know that's not yeah. going to work so whatever and then um uh, I tried to go the night of the the hailstorm or that big blizzard. I was gonna go on that Wednesday night. I made the decision not to because I could barely make it down to the end of my block without sliding all around. And I was like, <laughs> I don't want to get on the highway necessarily. But then, uh, I got a message from Shawnee actually that night, and she was like, "Are you actually there? I think I'm gonna come down." And I was like, "What?" Like, so she was feeling brave, and you know, there is some a, a, a really interesting kind of cool element to being out when something like that a a big storm is going down because mm-hmm. especially when it's a snowstorm thing there's a 
there's a calm and a quiet and kind of an energy also that exists that I don't know. I really like it. I look at things differently in so much as to say that there's open mics and then there's open jams. In my mind, an open mic is something where somebody maybe who has never done anything before in their life comes in, maybe reads some poetry, sings a song, plays some guitar, whatever. And then there's open jams, which are people who have already learned to play an instrument, but maybe for the first time, these guys all getting together. Right. I think that there's a place for both of them, but I think that the true open mic is really scarce at this point. I mean, it is, and most open mics are limited to um, to musicians, I think, and there isn't a lot of um, the other, the poetry and the skits and, and some of the other performance art stuff that I think maybe used to be involved more in open mics, but... Um, it's it's interesting though because like I think for myself I mean I can I can jump on and play with a lot of people I can pick up pretty much anybody's stuff and um but I prefer open mic scenarios over an open jam scenario because a lot of times in open jam scenarios it and not not that I have any problem at all with blues but it almost always reverts to some sort of a repetitive blues thing that sometimes can go on and on and on for incredibly too long and um i've been in a lot of scenarios where that's kind of been the case where everyone's not syncing up so they i mean i get why that why that is but um i guess i i don't get sparked artistically or whatever um by by that too often it's in the hands of the it's in the hands of the host yeah. The host really needs to guide it. And there is a place for that. I just think about it in, in terms of like, if I've never played in front of a group of people before and I walk in someplace and there's some seasoned players sitting there really getting down, I don't know that I would have the guts to go up there and say, okay, now I'm going to play these three chords that I know. I think that would be a real challenge. I was, uh, I was in a scenario one time at uh, um, Nighthawks, tap room in lacrosse it's no longer there but it was a great great venue up in lacrosse for a long time and uh they had a lot of amazing amazing blues players come through there like you wouldn't believe the people that played in that room and it was not it was a very unassuming room you know mm-hmm. had a very small little stage area but um i ended up getting up when i just back when i was still drinking so i was pretty eager a lot of times but uh i um I got up and these guys were playing Sultans of Swing and one of the dudes had heard me play before and he kind of kind of called me up and you know pressured me into getting on stage with him and I did and I was just like all right I can strum the chords along and um he called on me to do a solo and I was like no nah. I started shaking my head and he's like no do it man go and I ended up playing like probably one of the best solos improv solos I've ever done in my life um so I mean there is some merit to it because it was like uh trial by fire type of thing and like there's a um in the scenario where it is really seasoned players um exactly that like i didn't want to let them down or you know i wanted to be able to hold my own so i i i had the and they encouraged me to the point where i i think i i felt that even if i was to crash and burn they would let it be okay (laughs) you know what i mean wasn't going to get thrown off the stage and never work in this town again type of thing. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the blues for a second because I 
I've been in blues bands. I've played blues my whole life. And I think that there's two schools of thought about the blues. One, which maybe you subscribe to, is that the blues could be like an ingredient. The blues could be bread. The blues could be water or something like that, which has a place at the table, but isn't your entire meal. Would you feel that you're that way about it? Yeah, I listen to, I still listen to the blues fairly often. And I, I uh, you know, my band plays some blues songs, um, you know, when we have the longer shows where we're, we may do some covers here and there. But uh, I think the thing is, is that it, it's so much of what's going on now is, can be traced right back to the blues. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's hard to not find it in in a lot of things but as as far as like traditional blues and and kind of a straight like the 12 and 16 bar blues um and and more you know predominantly like solely blues music um yeah i mean i i'm glad it's there i don't i don't binge out on it um but i mean there's a couple like buddy guy and bb king i mean when especially bb king like he's there's a tone in his fingertips you know what i mean that mm-hmm. that um his playing is really intriguing and soothing to me and it, like he just you when you listen to him there's some random notes that will just come out of nowhere that just seem to be perfect and it could be just a single note in the middle of a 16 bar or something you know what i mean and yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's just the one and and he's been very good at capturing that feeling and there's still a lot of people out there i mean i just saw um um, from the new guard or the newer guard or whatever, I just saw Johnny Lang not too long ago, and uh, I mean they were just shredding. It was uh, it was impressive. I mean it's one of those things I think where when you're in the room, it's certainly a lot more engaging than if I was listening to it, um, you know, driving or something. Some people would say that there's not been a lot of evolution when it comes to the blues, and I think that in some ways there's some truth to that. Technology has made it so that blues players are incorporating some tones that weren't available, obviously, for a number of years. But I think that the structure, the integrity, it's all kind of the same. I think that there's a responsibility in in some ways for an artist to go through the process of evolution. And when you're specified to a genre, it makes it a challenge to get outside of that. It does. I mean... uh... So speaking of like Johnny Lang, he put out the, uh, he got famous because of blues, but then his, his, uh, album Wander the World came out and it really was more, um, I don't want to say poppy, but it, it, it definitely was not straight blues or traditional blues. And he kind of caught some backlash for it. Well, I think it might've even been one of his more commercially successful albums though. Um, and I personally loved so many of the songs that were on it, um, and I think maybe one of the things that I loved about it is that he didn't try recreating the same thing over and over again, you know? Um, I don't know. It It is very interesting, though, how sometimes, I mean, you kind of want the blues to be what the blues is, you know? And so I feel like, I don't know how the simplicity of it is what makes it what it is. So to to for it to evolve seems... What is, it's not blues then anymore. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas I think country music has obviously seen a, a 
a strange transgression. <laughs> it's turned, <laughs> it's turned so many different ways and gone so many different genres and they've in angles and they've still called it country. Um, you know, you find a lot of, especially nowadays, there's a lot of crossover between country and bluegrass and bluegrass and reggae. And it's interesting actually how bluegrass and reggae can line up so, so completely perfectly. <laughs> so sure. There's just so many different things that have kind of, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to label. There are many people who can say, there are many people who like to say, I was there for the beginning of this, or I was there when this started. I feel pretty confident in being able to say that I was there in the beginning stages of Old Soul Society. I remember one of your first performances as a trio at the Al Ringling Theater. Yep. There's elements of that band still, and there, there has to be because you're one of the driving forces behind it in songwriting and, and direction. But it's not the same band for the most part that it was. So speaking of evolution and the way that Old Soul Society has changed. You know, I'd been thinking for quite a while about an idea to, to do something. I felt like I was kind of working without a direction for many years after I had left Hooch. And um, I had reeled it in a little bit with the Soapbox Project, but it was still kind of um, a multi-genre thing that I, I had issues with a lot of agents that didn't know how to represent me. And basically I got turned down a lot because of that. And, um, I didn't, I don't know if, I, I don't want to say it was pride, but it might've been a little bit of pride, but I think that it was also, um, the way I feel about my writing is that, um, like I'm conduit, like I'm not, I'm not forcefully making things, you know, like I'm, I feel very lucky and fortunate to be able to kind of receive these songs. And so to dictate what kind of stuff I would try to do seemed unfathomable to me. So I just was like, well, I guess I'm rejected. <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? I wasn't going to like fall into form, um, to satisfy that, I guess. And then I felt like if I turn my back on this other stuff then do i not get those songs anymore mm -hmm. and do i then not you know i just didn't want, I, I didn't want to put up walls I, I liked being able to i liked being surprised myself by what kind of music i was going to create from day to day and mm -hmm. um with old soul though i i did have a lot of material that was um definitely more sparse more listening room stuff that i was not able to play out in bars and a lot of festival scenes and stuff that we were doing and at, so in that respect, I felt like I was kind of jamming up. And if I wasn't going to use this stuff, I wasn't going to get it anymore either. <laughs> you sure. know what I mean? Um, and I actually had enough of that material that I thought I had a direction that I wanted to go. And, um, you know, I just did a lot of stammering around until I, I gave up drinking um, New Year's Eve 2014. And January 1st, 2014 was the day I decided I'm going to, I'm going to, do this thing i'm going to start this thing and um i'd already worked with Brittany on a couple of things and uh we, we were gelling very well vocally it was um really powerful stuff and very sparse musically and that was kind of the intent right from the beginning and uh and so we had we've got in uh, mike sarah's in on piano and um we just had a very relaxed thing. Kenny Lizer from the band Wheelhouse would join us from time to time on violin, and it really added uh, an element, but it still kept it everything. It was like the space 
was where all of our our power was or like mm-hmm. the depth of the band was existed in the space between the notes rather than the notes that we were playing and all that so um it definitely felt good but you know it's hard when you you start um trying to get out of the area i mean i live in baraboo but i don't really play in baraboo very much i'm fortunate that i just played there a couple of weeks ago with my violin player leah and i'm fortunate that i'll be playing with my whole band there in a couple of weeks for art in the dark but mm-hmm. i really don't play in baraboo very much so um you know opportunity for what we want to do isn't um isn't right outside of our back door as it were and sure. i think a lot of people find it a lot harder to travel whereas i've kind of dedicated myself to doing just that so i don't see any other way <laughs> right whereas uh it it takes a toll on a lot of people though and um so i mean that was just difficult and we got to the point of not being able to do a lot of shows and having turned down a lot of stuff and um you know then we had um some of my old bandmates with the soapbox project you know were like wanted to come in and do some stuff and uh um so we started forming a larger larger band um we originally brought like Steno, our bass player in on upright and that that turned into him playing electric bass and mm-hmm. um percussion turned into full drums and stuff you know um we we switched piano players though for first and we had a guy named matt becker uh playing with us and he was just incredible but he was kind of the uh the guy that that bridged us back into more of a full band type of scenario just mm-hmm. because he was playing with all those guys too. Um, and I was still doing soapbox project shows on the side here and there because I wasn't able to do that many old soul shows. So, um, yeah, it just kind of, you know, Leah joined the band and we had full-time violin and, um, I actually have been struggling a lot lately with the, with the identity that we have right now because it is pretty far removed from, from where we were and uh you know we like we've got ourselves in a position where i've some certain venues um i phased out those exact songs that i created this band to be able to showcase do you know what i mean i do that's interesting did you did you find in these venues that you did you find that these venues accepted you or did you force them to accept you um you know, because you were... You mean a, before? Like what we were doing before? Maybe what you were doing before, but where you're at now, in so much as, you know, did the, did the venues shape you? Or did you say, this is what I'm doing, and you yeah, guys well, are going to have to accept this as it is? And that's probably the way that we should do it, uh, the latter there. But um, I think that, you know, for for the core of the band right now, as it is, and as it has been for a long time, um, we kind of forged our bonds in uh the jam band scene in the popcorn tavern in lacrosse mm-hmm. and um um so i i think playing back there um puts us back into a place where we we you know we go back to who we were and uh it's comfortable i mean exactly and i, I think that's like that's the thing it's like x's are easy and that that room is uh <laughs> you know we we know the nuances of the people that that hang out there and um and a lot of people come there and expect a certain thing from us because of what we had done and you know we had a pretty successful thing going up there so um it's hard to 
it's like we typecast ourselves by playing into it. Now we didn't have to, but we did. And once hmm. we did, then we were screwed. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I think that we would have had every opportunity and we do have opportunities. Like we do play a lot of, you know, like the, the Cavalier theater shows and, and some places that people really are there to listen. And, um, and we do pull off some pretty, uh, some pretty chill tunes in a place that's not traditionally known for accepting that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think our, well, and then we, we, the other thing is that we, we also then switched piano players and we have this guy, Mark Davini and now who is just an absolute phenom. I mean, the guy is incredible and he's been playing for years and years. He used to play with Clyde Stubblefield back in the, in the eighties. He was like, just a monster and he's a legend to a lot of those cats mm-hmm. and um so we feel very fortunate that he he wanted to play you know with us and he really liked the songs and that was what hooked him was the the songwriting not the uh the feel of the jam sure however the guy gets excited he's the oldest dude in the in the group but he gets he gets jacked up man he'll stand up and just start mashing on his keys and uh i know when i look over and i see mark stand up that we're we're going into the stratosphere for a little bit, you know, <laughs> it's hard not to go with it. Yeah. So he really brought the floor up on that. And then, uh, you know, there's a lot of respect from the guys in the band towards him as well. So like our bass player, Stino, I think sometimes tends to overplay or, or to, to try to show off his skill set and his knowledge versus what the song maybe requires. Um, and, and he's an incredible bass player, and I think maybe he just gets bored sometimes with uh, with what we are doing. Um, so you know he'll he'll throw a couple things down, and 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 Ben and, and him as well will lock into some funky stuff once in a while, and they're making eye contact, and it's fun, and it's an incredible energy on stage. But I mean, so it's hard, you know, how do you put the brakes on something like right, that? Right. I feel very fortunate, you know what I mean, to be able to even witness that stuff and to be as close to it as I am. So. Um, it's really hard to to slow that down, you know. It we had talked one time before where I believe, and I'm apologizing if I misquote you on this. You had said that you want to be in a band where you're the least qualified person in that band. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. And you feel you have that now. Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I, Especially as far as on paper. Now, one thing that I struggle with is that I am the like the songwriter of the group, mm-hmm. and so sometimes like we we don't rehearse. You know, we all live in different cities, and we kind of get together and we try out new ideas and sound checks, and we just stumble through them during gigs until sure. we start getting them down. You know. Yep, I've been there. But um, but we've had we did have a rehearsal uh for a couple tunes a while back, trying to get some pre-production stuff in for another record, and uh, um. It be, you know, some of the ideas and concepts that were being thrown out, I realized were mathematically sound, as it were, like theoretically mm-hmm. makes sense, but it doesn't serve the song. And so it's very important that that I'm learning to, um, whereas before I think I was I was happy to be like, you guys have degrees in this stuff. Go ahead, tell me about it. But sure. at this point, I think I, I'm kind of like, you haven't written a song, so you can't tell me that that's, you know, like we have to exp- like, what is the actual song about and why do we need, what, what is the purpose of putting that seven in there or that change that way? Um, or to throw some quirky bridge music in just to mix it up. 
when it comes off to me as really out of left field or unnecessary because I'm emotionally tied to the music more so than the mathematical equation of it, of how it works, you know? Do you feel like you weren't that way when it came to Soapbox Project or Hooch? Do you feel like like you didn't stand on your principles of, of the song then? Um, Sometimes. I mean, I, I... You know, at that point, I think we were like with hooch especially um we did we did get together in the room and jam stuff out and things evolved and we worked together on a lot of things and and you know that type of band um we were known for being a genre bending group and so to do some of that stuff actually fit well into the jammy scenes that we were playing in but um but but at the same time a lot of the most of the material that we built ourselves on was all stuff that I had written 100% myself and it was already done and the band was just happy to have something that was sure. complete, you know, so there wasn't a lot of discussion on it. But the difference is now is that I don't write um, a lot of full, complete pieces all at once in the stream of consciousness like I used to. Mm-hmm. I tend to be a little more thoughtful about what I'm doing because I've got a lot of stuff that I've listened back over the years and been like, man, that really could have been great and I just settled and... You know what it's like? It's like if you if you step back and allow it to marinate, it might go away or it might come to be the thing that sure. you've been waiting for. But if you force something and you say, well, I'll just do this for now as a filler, well, by doing that 10 times or 11 times or whatever, mm-hmm. it now is the way you do it. You right. know what I mean? It right. becomes a habit. And so, um, and then it's harder to get your mind out of that into exploring whatever ideas could come up. As a chief songwriter, when you walk into the room with your guys, you put it out there and it's like, I think this is going to be the new song. And if it's accepted, then, you know, you work on it, you hash it out. If it's not, then sometimes you got to have another one in your back pocket for that sort of sort of thing. Unless you're one of those songwriters that's like, nope, this is the song and this is how it's going to be. And when you get into the situation where you've got people that you trust and that you play with, then it's, it becomes less of a, I want you to play it this way or that way. And more of a, I want you to put your spin on it. And then, like you said, yeah, it does kind of take its own. Yeah. I mean, a life of its own. The guys that I play with, I trust a hundred percent. And, um, I don't tell people how I want them to play the songs by any means. Um, I want to see what their instinct is and where they want to go with it. And they're really good at reading me and knowing where I'm coming from by this point in our lives together, you know? So, um, we were very fortunate in that, in that sense, but also, I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of times I think where, where maybe I wouldn't have said anything and now I will kind of stand my ground a little bit and be like, you know, that's not quite what I was thinking or, or, might be overplaying that or or could we can we wait to come in until here you know like i i'll suggest things out and and if if somebody suggests something that i really don't like i'll be i'll say it you know what i mean mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but for the most part i'm i'm totally i mean i'm in awe of the people i get to play with so it's so i do i do really respect their instincts and stuff and what they what they generally want to do now we are in this place where we you know we had because of the way the transition of the band has been and the material that we we have a record ready that is uh, a lot more aggressive. I, sh- I don't maybe want to say aggressive, but it's a lot heavier than the first record we put out. And we actually decided to scrap that 
project because I felt like it was too much of a departure from what we had put out. And we are gaining fans still in random markets that I don't really know how we're, how we're being heard in, but um, we are still gaining fans off of that first record. And I, I don't think that they're ready for that great of a departure yet. We may actually lose them. Um, so um, I, and I have a lot of material that I think will work nicely as the stepping stone, as it were. I don't know if we'll ever even do anything with that other stuff to tell you the truth, because the stuff I've been, we were just getting working on that. And I had a few songs that would have, would have followed up the last record nicely, but um, I've been writing like crazy lately since we started finally doing work to get ready for this other record we were going to do. And so now the stuff I've been writing is, uh, I feel like the best stuff I've, I've written. Um, And a lot of it's not done yet, but I mean, Mm -hmm. musically and the concepts in it all, it's, I, I feel a lot more complete about it all than what I was doing even with the last batch of songs that we were talking about recording. So you had a point A, you had a point B, but you feel as though you need to write something that's going to be a transition between the two. But you might find out that this is going to actually transition you to something totally different. Well, right, exactly. And the other thing is that the the point B, as it were, was um, like we like how this whole conversation kind of started it was it's not where this band was mm-hmm. and and with the identity of this band in my mind i mean we we are it, it's um you know a snapshot of who we are and what we can be at this moment in time but um but it's not where the intent is and so we're gonna you know it's gonna be one of those things where i have to reel the rest of the group kind of in and be like all right like we know we can play dynamically and we know we can do these things. Um, let's not just throw out the easy answer or, you know, like let's consciously make this the, you know, give these songs the life and the space that they need to breathe. And, you know, it's all about the dynamics. What year would you say was the, was the birth of Hooch? Um. Well, I mean, we, we originally started in Baraboo with my old drummer, Robbie Lang, uh, rest in peace, and uh, Corey Menard um, from the Blacker Brothers Band, and uh, Marcus Glodell, uh, who used to be, who followed up with Hooch as well. Um, and that was in like 98, I think. It was kind of like the first, um, it was like late 98, I think by 99, we had gone out and started doing gigs and started playing um we're playing with a lot of like pop punk bands and groups from the area. Um, you know, like the, uh, civic center and then the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the bingo hall of the <laughs> sure. BFW or whatever. Um, and then we started getting into some festival and bar type of things, but we, you know, we were just a garage band basically. And, um, we, we had a lot of concept and a lot of heart and, um, I think the fact that we came out of the gate with original music really uh you know kind of surprised some people and I think our the people that supported us right right from the beginning I think that was why because they were like well you know I listen back to that stuff and it's really really not that great but <laughs> but if I consider the idea that you know we were just a bunch of kind of hoodlum outcasts from our town and we started not doing horrible things so that we could focus our times working on this music and mm-hmm. um you know it 
it was just a really amazing time. But so that was like 98, 99. And then, uh, that band though also was, you know, we still were, we were partying a lot and stuff. And so I had quit, uh, quit the band and I moved to New Mexico and, uh, just kind of went on a sabbatical. And when I came back from New Mexico, uh, was when my ex-wife, um, my wife at the time was pregnant with my daughter, Ab or Kaya. And, uh, um, she's also from the, from Wisconsin. So she wanted to come back, but I didn't want to move back to Baraboo. So I opted that we moved to La Crosse because I had, uh, lived there previously and really loved the city. And that was in 2001, actually, uh, September. So it was, um, uh, I actually remember my landlord, I, it was the first time I'd ever set up an apartment over the internet. So it was crazy, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was walking into really. You see pictures, but it's always different, you know, dimension wise. And, and also stuff. trying to remember the neighborhood. Right. And area. how you perceive things, you know, like a, a picture you, you can tell and you have a frame of reference in a way, but like all of a sudden you're like, oh, that looks like a, a huge room. And then you realize like, oh there's a Pepsi can that's half the size of the wall, you know, or whatever. So then you start to, you know, you realize that when you walk in. So, but anyways, I remember my landlord coming over to sign our lease and stuff with, uh, uh, the morning of September 11th. And we like kind of sat there in disbelief watching the TV as all that unfolded and, uh, like signed these papers. And I was just like, kind of, I ended up writing a song that was on the, on the record, the old soul record. Um, that I wrote before my daughter was born, but kind of from her viewpoint. And I felt really guilty about, you know, kind of this world that I was bringing her into and all this stuff. But um, anyways, I put up an ad. Um, no, before that, I went to the record shop in Deaf Ear up in mm -hmm. La Crosse. And uh, I ran into my old bass player, Marcus, who just happened to be going to school up there. And he was like... Um, you know, what are you doing here? And I was like, I moved here. I'm like, what, what are you doing here? Cause you know, he had never lived there before. I'd never heard him say anything about lacrosse ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had just started going to school there. So we immediately started playing again and we put up an ad and the very first person that answered the ad was Ben Rohde, who is my drummer to this day. Um, yeah. And then his roommate, Joe, and that was in 2002 when we, I think played our first gig, um, as Hooch. We actually called Ruben for a little while. Ruben Stash, <laughs> and then we changed it to Ruben. It was a guy I used to, uh, he was a pharmacist we used to know. So in the late 90s, when you guys were bopping around together as kids, you didn't refer to yourselves as Hooch then? We did, yeah. We did. did, and that's why, um, and because, you know, Corey wasn't involved in it and Robbie wasn't involved in it, we didn't call ourselves that. But um, we came back to the area, um, we had been doing a couple shows in lacrosse that went well, and we came down to Baraboo to play at Conway's Pub. Or I don't even remember where it was. I don't think that Conway's was even there anymore. But we came back to Baraboo to play a gig, and um, we invited Corey to play with us. And uh, he did. And it was we kind of had a straight, an interesting scenario because we already had Joe playing lead guitar, and then Corey came in, so it was like we br had this pair of congas, and like the songs Joe knew, Corey would jump on congas, and the songs that Corey knew, uh, Joe would jump on congas, you know, and um, uh, so that was interesting, kind of weird. And I remember it being a real big deal the day we decided not to bring the congas, you know, it's like <laughs> everything changed, and uh, but um. But we did. We we called ourselves Ruben initially, and then once we reformed with Corey, 
and we had the core back. It was like we basically had a different drummer and an additional guitar player, mm -hmm. you know, and a little more focus and intent. And we were getting offers from places like, man, I was back in Wisconsin for a week and we had an offer from Marley's. They heard I was back to come down. And we used to do a house band thing there prior. Um, and they ended up contracting us in the Dells. We were touring all over the place. We had a, a weekly gig in Wisconsin Dells, which was really cool for me because I had been in New Mexico for a long time and, you know, hadn't really been back around the area or around home. Um, what did you do for music in New Mexico? I starved. <laughs> there was a, there was some a guy named Jason who used to he used to run the Friday nights. Uh, I forget what they call it exactly, but it was like the Church of the Kitchen Table type of thing or whatever. And mm -hmm. man, there were some of the most amazing players you would imagine. And and in this room, in the space, they they eventually converted into a, a legitimate studio. Um, they had amps of any kind and keys and guitars and basses and flutes and you name it, man, like, uh, trumpets and trombones and violins. And they just had all this stuff there and they had all these random people that would come there. And, you know, there was, a, I was at a session one night and this guy was like, oh man, this is great. I'm gonna go grab my heart. <laughs> and I was like, all right, you know, get some blues harmonica going on here or something. And this guy wheels in a harp. An actual harp, you know, <laughs> and uh, and it was amazing. We played a bunch of songs in D, <laughs> but it was really really cool and uh, hammered dulcimers and stuff. So I mean, I had, and I was accepted by a lot older group of people, mm -hmm. but to the point of they would play with me and they were happy I was there. And some of them would even like come pick me up if I didn't show up or something or like. Mm. So I mean you know, I had that, but at the same time the commitment as far as um, you know creating a band and 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 actually banding together with a few people just didn't wasn't an opportunity that existed for me there. Did you play solo stuff at that point? Yeah, I I did a, a lot of solo stuff. There was some really amazing places down there to play, like up in the um, the Buckhorn Saloon is a really kind of a famous old dive. Um, up in the mountains of Pinos Altos and Southwest. It's like around the edge of the Gila National Forest. And, uh, you know, it's such an interesting place where I lived because there was, you had a lot of really rich people that walked away from, you know, the hustle and bustle of mm -hmm. society mm -hmm. as, as we know it. And, uh, and you had a lot of people that were like, um, you know, generations of ranchers um you know from the area and, and and native um from the area as well as a lot of um, latino population i mean we were right right on the border basically um and and you also just had random people who like were watching tv and thinking that's the way the world is and they wish they could be in that world too so like sure yeah I mean, there was just such an interesting mix of people and it was really really amazing to uh to get to play kind of a lot of different styles and a lot of different stuff but i really just kind of soaked in the art culture and really um put myself to work on uh i was doing landscaping and uh and painting houses which is totally different in new mexico than it is around here <laughs> especially the landscaping side of things but um and I worked for a moving company. Like we, we had all these jobs that kind of overlapped, and it was all with the same few people that kind of mm -hmm. ran these random odd job businesses. And uh, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we came back. How comfortable were you transitioning from being a band member to 
um, performing solo? Um, well, I mean, I was very, I was playing solo gigs still like on the side w with Hooch and mm -hmm. stuff. And, um, and I maintained like, um, this place in lacrosse called the recovery room. I maintained a jam session there for years during kind of our, our peak. Um, well, there was a few times we were on the road and I wasn't going to make it back, but I would prioritize like driving back from like Fargo or whatever to like do this gig that didn't pay much and yeah yeah you know but it was such an experience for the people that were involved in it and what it was um so i mean i i was comfortable in that in that realm i think that after i quit the band and and had moved it really became uh it was more nerves about i think the pressure of the other people were putting on me about what would i be able to do mm -hmm. you know like would I, would I come out with something cooler? Was it the band or, you know, like, um, and I think that I struggle with that a little bit. I heard, you know, I, I don't normally allow people's opinions to infect my mind, but I, I did. And, um, so, I mean, I had some, some stuff to that. And there's people who just weren't going to like what I was doing on my own just because they loved the band and were just pissed that the band wasn't together anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they would, you know, um, I just had to accept that, I think. And then once I did, I I recorded a record that I thought was a, a poignant statement kind of about the direction where my writing was going. And um, I don't know, it just delved a little deeper into... Um, what we were doing hooch became very much a party band we had some conceptual stuff but a lot of it was geared towards energy um and so i recorded this record and somebody had reformatted the hard drive and we lost the entire sessions mm. like everything and so that was kind of devastating and we went in and a few months later i had written a couple other songs by this point and we went in and redid the album couple of changes in the track selections but uh um and then the guy who produced that record with us like just took off to europe before we were finished like we were done tracking we just didn't finish mixing it mm -hmm. and he just went to europe and i <laughs> i never i've never seen the guy since i've never been able to make contact with him and i just um yeah so i kind of uh, i don't know i stopped being focused on I was very dejected at that point, I mm -hmm. guess, to say the least. And and I was drinking pretty heavily by then. And I started to, uh, you know, I was just, I was getting gig offers like crazy. And I was just running around playing shows, mostly solo, mm -hmm. sometimes with my friend Kenny. To be completely honest with you, it was very nice to not have to deal with anybody. <laughs> you know, we had been in a band. So you're in that. When I started Hooch, I went out of my way to make sure that it was a democracy thing and it got to the place where you know sometimes people would vote there's five of us so there's always going to be the breaker you know mm -hmm. and uh but sometimes people would vote based on like 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 Corey would vote against marcus because marcus hadn't changed his socks in two days or something and he had to share rooms with him or mm -hmm. something you know what I mean? yeah, so be sure. like, whatever you say i'm saying the opposite and and it got to a place where i was just focused about the vision and i ref 
like I got really upset when I knew that people were making decisions that weren't based on what was really the best thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and then we also, you know, with that band, we had management and agents and, uh, you know, publicists and stylists and people that just kind of all these clingerons um, mm-hmm. that it was a great experience. It was great um, to learn from a lot of those people about what they do and, and, and what we should be paying attention to. But at the same time, you know, it's just like, we would go out. My daughter was very young at the time and I wasn't, I didn't see her very much. And that was hard for me. And, uh, then we come home and find out that, you know, all these people who sat at their desk made as much money as we did or more, (laughs) you know, it was, it was really hard to accept. So, um, after the band broke up and I went on solo, it was actually really, really nice for quite a while because I didn't have to deal with anyone and I was making a lot of money because I was making all of it myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Another solo performer, Brad Palmer. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's yeah, originally, Cops and Rockers. Or... He was in Cops and Rockers for a little while. He's originally from Illinois and he is in Portage now. He plays fairly regularly at Fawn Creek. He does the solo thing and and he gave me the list. I don't have to worry about somebody being late. I don't have yeah. to worry about somebody not having a ride. I don't have to worry about somebody not being sober. You know, that sort of thing. It's you know, it's really funny. There's 100% validity to all of that. Sure. Um but at the same time, you know, like I don't know when I've had an age in my life like the the pros- the thought of of like dating or something seems completely just frightening to me Mm -hmm. but you know it's funny when you so like you find yourself in a situation where same type of thing like you break up from this relationship and you're like i'm single i'm single i'm single i'm alone (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean and so there's there's also that i mean so there are a lot of those things that that you don't have to deal with but at the same time like i i really I'm a I'm an energy guy and mm-hmm. I think that I thrive when I have someone to play off of, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to have a full band, but it would be nice to have someone else to play with, you know what I mean? It makes it interesting for the audience. Well, it does. And I think for me, um I have a few places where I really I think feel comfortable all by myself and I and I can engage an audience uh certain rooms that maybe are are more built for that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um and doing it once in a while is nice too but i don't want to live in that world you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i i'm very very fortunate that i don't i mean i can play solo i have a lot of different people that i play duo shows with so even like a couple weeks ago i played with uh, violinist kenny lizer one night and the next night i played with leah so like it wasn't boring to me because i got a different take from each of them on sure. step, you know what I mean. So it kind of keeps some of that material fresh for me, and uh, and then playing solo, and then playing a duo, and then going to play with the band. Like I, I pay my bills with the solo duo shows and but production jobs and and bookings and other you know stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and I don't have to put that pressure onto my band. And and everybody else is kind of in the same position where we don't we're not relying on the band to feed us or to take care of any of our anything really other than our artistic needs and like our our fixed to jam to share that energy and exchange with uh each other and and certainly with audiences if if we're playing out you know it's interesting because when i the way i say that is i guess we have we're always playing out but sometimes 
we play to the audience and we throw all of our energy straight forward. And other times we keep that energy and we, it's like on the stage with us. And we, I mean, it's great that there's people there, but they're like not, we're not tuned in mm-hmm. to what they want or what, you know, like yeah. we're certain we're, we're locked into each other and we're having this dialogue without words and um, we're listening more than we're speaking to as it were. It is enjoyable to watch people working it out live oh, right man. in front of you. Yeah, I mean I've I've been pushed to levels. You know, when when the crowd is is in on it too and that energy level is just like through the roof. Um, you know, I've played outside of my skill set. I've played things that you know, time stands still and every note you can just see where you're going to go next and and the bends are just perfect and and it's just so much slowed down and mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, you know, like you'll go back later and be like you get this crazy rush because not only did that happen, but then, you know, you just, I mean, did the energy thing happen with the, with the band and the crowd and there was a good show, but like, you just know that you did something that you couldn't do before mm-hmm. and that's exciting. And then, but then it's also discouraging when you try to do it again and you can't. Sure. <laughs> sure. But yeah. it's, that's the thing about it. I mean, that's, that, that is the, the magic. It really is. I mean, it's incredible. And to be completely honest, it's that thing that, you know, it's been, I gave up drinking as a raging alcoholic. I quit just cold turkey one day, um, a little over four and a half years, almost four and a half years ago. And I was very concerned about how, how I would be able to be in these situations in these places. And I, my life was in bars and clubs and places where, um, first of all, that stuff is sold, but also people are constantly trying to push stuff at you. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's almost like you're rude if you say no, thank you. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like they, some people really clap back about that, and uh, so it's it's a it's an interesting culture to to exist in. Especially, I mean, there has been a shift. I tell you, I've noticed a shift though since I quit drinking and and seeing a lot more people that I know that go out and drink, and people that that are stopping drinking now that still drink but won't drink at their gigs, or um, people that will will go out to watch shows even though they don't drink. You didn't see that before very mm-hmm. much, you know, a lot at least of people, around here anyways. A lot of people cur- have, have curbed that because of uh, drinking and driving, not just to save their lives, but also to save their livelihood. They don't want to get well, busted for it. Right, and other people's. I mean, for me, that was, I had a list of reasons why I should quit, but I, I know that that was, um, that was one of them is that, you know, the idea of hurting somebody else, like, mm-hmm. um, scared the hell out of me. But anyways, the... Uh, I went out and I played the first night that I played with my whole band. I had this epiphany because I like I was higher than I'd ever been before in my life. You know, like I felt an energy that was unfiltered, like and it was raw and it was real and it and and I knew that it didn't come from a substance that I could put in a bag or a bottle. And that you know, suddenly like I realized I was going to be just fine. I can go into these places and not feel at all compelled because I just realized that, you know, some people spend their whole lives meditating, trying to reach this state that we can allow ourselves to get to every night Mm -hmm. if we allow ourselves to, you know, but I mean, it's really, it really is magical experience. And when you play with people that you're synced to, it's incredible. It's a huge misconception among a number of musicians 
performers in general, that they need to do something to put themselves into an altered state in order to perform? Well, we, you know, one of the things I did is I made, I made lists, pros and cons. And uh, it, it was obviously way stacked towards the cons. But, <laughs> but I noticed, I went back and I revisited this list many times and I, and I would notice those pros and that was some of them like, uh, you know, confidence and, and whatever, just like, I need to get in the zone, you know, like whatever. This, and I realized that those are lies that I tell myself and I, mm-hmm. and I slowly moved them to the other list, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it is that it's uh, nerves and anxieties about it. I mean, it's, some people are incredibly eager to get up and, and do something in front of people and other people like want to play music and it just so happens that they have to get in front of people to do that. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I mean, I, I went back through and I reevaluated and I, re- and, I, and I've listened to a lot of, you know, I had to dump a lot of uh, board mixes um, into a hard drive is trying to make an archive of uh, live shows from Hooch days and stuff. And mm-hmm. I realized how horrible a lot of those shows, I mean, it, obviously the room is a little different, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it was appalling to me that we got paid and that we, <laughs> some of those things and, <laughs> and that our reputation was what it was when um, it, I kind of had a moment where I felt fraudulent to tell you the truth. I felt like we were glorified cheerleaders for some beer company. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and it really offended my, I offended myself. I was, I was mad at sure. myself for allowing myself to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to some extent we're always going to be that if we are in the entertainment industry, there's always an, an angle of selling product that comes to the venues that, you know, the better venues you get to blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how they pay for a lot of the stuff that we get to do. And I understand that. Um, but it can't be the driving force, you know what I mean? And, and it really was like, we, we did like, I just had someone request a song that I had written a long time ago called bar hop that I don't play anymore. Uh, I told her I didn't remember it. I a hundred percent remember it. <laughs> and I remember that I've evolved from the person I was when I wrote that song. Um, <laughs> she'll hear this now and think differently no i told her actually i told her the truth because i i played it for her. she she worked at the venue actually at the popcorn she had was working there so after everybody was gone and even my bandmates were gone um i pulled out my guitar and played it at the bar and before right before i left mm-hmm. I was like there i'll play it for you but just so you know i'm not gonna put that through the pa system that's not who i am anymore um back when hooch first started originally the original hooch i had a song called getaway that uh, was written about uh, uh, basically having a lot of marijuana and a cop trying to stop you and you having a full tank of gas and just deciding to low-speed chase, man, and Mm -hmm. just get rid of the evidence the only way we knew how, (laughs) you know? Um, That was the essential basis of the whole song, and it was kind of like a, I don't want to say a hit, but it was like our big song or whatever, Um, and it's what got people um really hip to us Mm -hmm. and uh people still request that song and i i might play it in my house once a year just to see if i still got it Mm -hmm. (laughs) sure like because there's some cool rhythm stuff that that goes on in there but i mean the the message is certainly not something that i would be um encouraging like my daughter to listen to (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) or other kids coming up um so Hooch took its toll on some members, and 
when did you guys decide that was it? Um, it was at the end of 2007, I believe. That's a long run for a, for a first band. Yeah, well, it was... And a, for those at home, I'm making air quotes, yeah. first band. Yeah, it was an aggressive... Uh, we had a very aggressive approach to how we took on touring shows. Um, I mean, we didn't really... We were kind of on the constant tour, you know what I mean? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, you eat when you stop for gas. So whatever's rolling around on those things is your you know, your main kind of source of, of health. And sure. That's frightening. Yeah. Uh, you know, but we, th so there's a lot of that. Plus we, you know, we were, we weren't prepared for the kind of success that we had. And, um, and so we exploited it pretty much, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we took advantage of all the things that people wanted to give us. And, um, um, you know, we just kind of were like in shock. Like, what? I can't believe it. Like, <laughs> what well, was the better part of your twenties? Yeah, being in this band. Yeah, exactly. Think about anybody in their twenties and their decision, their decision-making skills. Yeah. Now give them whatever they want. Well, and the stupid thing is, is that there's also like, um, you know, you take that concept and then you add that to a little bit of a pack mentality, where maybe something told me that that's stupid, but. The other two guys that are in the car with me aren't going to say that, so we're mm -hmm. all doing it now, even though they all thought it was stupid too. Right? But nobody wanted to say it for you know what I mean. So yeah, like, yeah. So here we are doing some stupid shit, and like, yeah, I love this. I'm glad we're doing this, right? You want to <laughs> you want to know what's going to make it more stupid? Let's do this. Yeah. You know. So the, and there was uh, you know, we had a, we had some <laughs> pretty amazing and fun times doing some stupid shit too, though. So, um, you know. I remember one time we had we were down in the Dells and actually uh the Mayflower Hotel, Motel, whatever, and uh we we had come down the night before for Marley's gig and they had like their customer appreciation or employee appreciation party and they invited us to it. They put us up in the room for an extra night. We actually had a night off and we were coming up the way. So instead of having to go back home for a day, we just stayed and uh, we traveled with a production company, and um, so our sound company guys, Chad and uh, Jake, had rooms on the same floor, and we were just, I don't remember what the situation was, but I ended up on top of the mini fridge, and I dove to tackle our sound guy, Chad, and I missed him by like a foot and a half. I just completely missed him. <laughs> and uh, I ended up hit, slamming into the door frame, and I broke my arm, which I didn't know until... And I mean, I knew it hurt, but I was like, well, whatever. Mm -hmm. And the next day, uh, I woke up and it looked like I had a golf ball stuffed under my skin. It was mm -hmm. just incredible. And, um, but we had to play in a few hours. And, uh, so I did this show and I played actually another eight shows, you know, before we had a little time off and actually got the thing set right. But, um, yeah, like, so that was pretty stupid thing to do but it also is like i have people that that like say this is stuff of legend like playing with a broken arm and like mm -hmm. just raging this show you know so like i wouldn't encourage anyone to do it and i certainly wouldn't do it again but at the same time there was you know i'm glad i have some unique stories i've been pretty blessed to do some i'm i'm lucky to be alive at all i think and to to be able to live the life i do so it wasn't purely financial reasons to finally call it an end for hooch 
Oh no, I mean we like I said, we we um we certainly all kind of had our egos expanded. Um we we're all kind of using substances a little bit more than we probably should have and uh more than was sustainable. Um I think we also we there was there were financial issues but more on a personal level, not within the band. Um and there became some kind of interpersonal squabbling and we also had, you know, like I said, some decisions were made based on things that were not necessarily relevant to the direction of the band and decisions about the direction of the band were made based on things that were not um, about the band. But, mm-hmm. um, and we had all these clinger ons and we kind of felt like we were getting, getting used in some respects. And, and we also had, um, you know, we, we had been, we'd been basically given a bunch of money to go out to California and make a record. And, uh, we did that and, we didn't do the right things as far as hiring the publicity machine that we should have. We didn't do all the marketing that we should have. And we, we certainly didn't capitalize on the opportunity. And I think that we all knew that. And it, there were a lot of people that had a lot of hopes for us. And then when they saw that we were not really taking that next leap, um, I think it started to affect their faith in us as Mm -hmm. well you know, our, our core fan base was our age too. And they all, people get older and they start getting real jobs and, and getting married and having kids and not going out to shows. And so, um, your hope is to catch that next wave. Right. But at the same time, I mean, we were, we were too tired, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to inspire the next wave as it were. You should have been moving on as well. Right. With your contemporaries. Right. Um, you know, and there's there's some ways to look at like i we've talked uh, in the last couple of years about possibly doing something together again and uh everybody else in the band except Corey is pretty into it and Corey's reasons are basically that he's just not proud of who he was when we when we were um which i i respect that i mean i'm not proud of the person that i was always at that time either you know um but I also am proud of, I'm very proud of the work that we did together and we did do it and we did accomplish a lot of really great things. And I, I, so for me, I have a hard time turning my back on that when, you know, I mean, Corey's had some health issues. I've, I, I've developed some, some issues myself over the years and, uh, um, I don't know. Is the memory as it is, is a very good one. And I don't know, maybe Corey's right. Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't be, that is good and it would end up leaving our memory of it not as good our last show together was um two sold out shows in lacrosse at the popcorn tavern uh over thanksgiving and that was incredible and our very last show prior that was a reunion show a year after we broke up and our very last show prior to that was a sold out show at the high noon saloon which was a venue that we could not get into for a long time so mm-hmm. so there was some definite we went out on a high note um Actually, you know, when I had first moved back to Baraboo, Corey was the one that kind of started the, me wanting to do a band again. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of put together the Soapbox Project, as it were. It was uh, Dan Braun, who Corey had jammed with for years, and I'd always been friends with, but I hadn't actually played with. Uh, came in on bass, and, and Guy Bolden, or actually Brad Raber at first was on drums for a little while, and then Guy Bolden, who 
I jammed with years and years ago, really randomly when I was 18, this is before Hooch or anything like, um, found him in a storage garage in lacrosse and he ended up years later he's in the dells and working at the music store and we just like what <laughs> super um unusual but him and cory worked together so obviously um that was you know they were talking music all the time and and mm-hmm. suddenly i'm in town and you know there's really at that time there weren't a lot of other people i think that they knew that were writing songs and singing um, and that was kind of like the missing element for what they wanted to do at that time anyways. Mm-hmm. So Corey got us all motivated to get together and play and he got me to get out of my mindset of, of doing the solo stuff that I was doing and got me back to appreciating playing with other people again. Um, and then he had got struck down with his pancreatitis and had his gallbladder out and just got really, really um sick there and you know so that obviously took him out of the equation as far as being able to travel and we were just starting to get more road gigs and and going out and doing stuff and um it was really hard for me because my motivation in starting to play with people again was to play with Corey. and not that i didn't love playing with guy and dan in fact we played for a long time after Corey was uh, not with us but but it was really hard for me because i got so accustomed to that sound and that tone and the, I mean the guy he's so good that you can't you, you notice when he's not there <laughs> it's sure. immediately apparent that he is not a part mm-hmm. of it you know and uh it just felt like this huge gaping hole to me um and I felt like I was unfairly um kind of clapping back at the other guys in the band because I was just unhappy about mm-hmm. it you know what I mean um, so it was an awkward, there was definitely an awkward time and, and, uh, but then we got to the, you know, the point in the space, I think at that time I got really ambitious too. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I play with a broken arm, so, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. like how sick are you type yeah. of thing, you know? Sure. And I think that, that Corey took that as a disrespect and, and in hindsight, you know, I probably would too. Um, but at the time I was not as focused maybe as I should have been about him as a person. It was more about what we as a band and mm-hmm. what, you know, and he was such a huge part of that to me that that's kind of where I was focused at, you know. Um, we have since, you know, discussed the, those things and, and talked, and he actually came in and did some recordings with me that, uh, with Luke Jorgensen, actually, that we may we may dig up. When did you start Ragged Roots? Well, I actually started it 10 years ago, um, but it wasn't actually Ragged Roots the first year that we did it. I didn't have a name for it. And um, we did it out at LaRue, the LaRue station. And the guy that basically, my friend Tony Finseth worked out there and, and she was like, oh, you should talk to this guy. He's got this land and he's got this place and he just nothing's going on out here. You know, it'd be really cool to, to utilize this space. And so I went out and met with the guy a few times and I kind of pitched him an idea and he gave me a small budget and uh, I uh, raised some money myself did some barter work with some sound companies and uh, you know we got a stage up and booked in like five bands and um, he wanted to call it the LaRue Station Summerfest which um, I'm not even going to try to be tactful that's stupid as shit <laughs> because it was during Summerfest 
mm-hmm. you know, the real Summerfest. Mm-hmm. So just a really unfortunate uh, decision making. And, and at the time, you know, he put up most of the money for the thing, and and I want I was really trying to uh, I wanted to do something long term or annual, and I I wanted to build a relationship, and I saw potential there, um, but I also saw through that decision and then a, a series of other ones how um, ill informed this person was, and and so I knew we were doomed. Um, the following year, we expanded from a one day event to a two day event, and at that point ragged roots name was ragged roots revival and it was only it was actually supposed to kind of come down to the uh just the revival part of it it's weird how we end up dropping that and keeping the ragged roots um because of just the way people would call it and the way we just didn't have a very clear marketing opinion or idea at the beginning and it was just to make sure that we had a name that we were presenting rather than him getting to choose again. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so it got like steamrolled through kind of at the zero hour and that's just stuck now. Um, you know, and the intent behind it obviously being that we were focused on regional acts and people that we knew. It was a lot of times with playing so many shows, you don't get to see your friends' bands play unless you play a show with them. So that was kind of the basis and the concept of how that mm-hmm. started. And then... uh um, so that, you know, that's where the roots came from. And the ragged part was just kind of like, we were all these different genres and, you know, we were all doing different stuff, but yeah, we were all friends and, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, I think it was from the standpoint of maybe somebody coming to the show, it was definitely, uh, kind of schizophrenic. <laughs> There's multiple personalities going on there. So I've been doing this 10 years in a row. And then, but the first Ragged Roots was nine years ago. And then I moved to Edge of Dells. Uh, my friend Matt Lindemeyer, my friend Shannon uh, Geary, and uh, a couple other people had told me I should talk with them. And um, I had called and actually talked to Kenny a couple times. And, you know, he's very busy with what he was doing. And he didn't know who I was. And kind of was like, oh, one of these days or whatever. And then Matt Lindemeyer was kind of like, no, you let's just go talk to the guy just go out there mm-hmm. and and hash it out so we arranged a meeting and uh i sat down and pitched him on my my concept and i told him how i thought we could could make some things work out and um you know he was he was willing to try it he i think he he wanted to do something as well and didn't have i think the the connection directly into the original music world and um and the local regional uh, artists as well. And so I think that to him, I just had enough ambition and drive and I had somewhat of a, a solid business plan together. Mm-hmm. And um, so he rolled the dice and it ended up being a lot of fun. We did it again, more fun, and just kind of grew, you know. So moving over to the Edge Dells is probably the best thing to ever happen for the absolutely. festival. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, one, um, Kenny and I found a lot of mutual respect for each other because, you know, he's a guy who he puts a lot of, he's very thorough and he puts a lot of thought into things, but he also is willing to try things. He's not a textbook guy. He's willing to shoot from the hip and just like, I don't know. I mean, I say that won't work, but Mm -hmm. let's try it. Maybe I'm wrong. 
maybe I can prove it. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, it and, takes uh, a little bit of that to actually make things work sometimes. It really does. And I mean, we had, you know, we, we, we have a massive list of things that to make that we can learn from each year. And, you know, you do learn from the things previously, but new scenarios are always going to come up as well. And you have to be able to adapt. And, and I think that the only way that anything like this could sustain is if you are willing to adapt and you are able to um, have a a kind of a crew of people around you that that is also kind of elastic in that sense. Um, Kenny's very much that. He's, and he runs his crew great. And, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have Jesse Turner um, come on board on my end of production. And, uh, you know, she's been incredible as far as... Um, the most important stuff like artist sign-ins and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. keeping track of, you know, the making sure which bands are here at what times and making sure everyone gets their credentials so they can go places. Cause I'm kind of running all over the place and I can't be nailed down. And, and in the first couple of years, it was certainly like people would check in and end up standing there for an hour waiting for me to get back. And I would even run past them two or three times, you know? Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely the last I would probably say four of them has definitely been a more mellow Derek at Ragged Roots than than the first few at Edge Dells. You you were running speaking of ragged. Yeah. <laughs> you were running yourself ragged those. Well, I those mean there's two years. things happening there and and one is that it's just an it really is an incredible amount of work and and mm-hmm. it's a lot of mental work as well. So the uh the strain and stress that that puts on you physically um, on top of not sleeping much for multiple days as, on top of, um, you know, just knowing that if it doesn't go right, you're not going to get to do this again. Um, and, and, and substance abuse at the time, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. cutting that out of my life has really been, uh, I don't know. That's changed a lot of things for me as well, but also, I mean, we're, we're learning, we're learning what we're doing a little bit better and we've got a few people on board with us that are that have been there for a couple of years that know what's going on too so we're not completely getting blindsided and we've been we've been coming up with better plans earlier <laughs> sure so we're not doing as much scrambling and and all that um do you feel do you and feel- a lot of the bands we have are um kind of more professional and a little easier to do i mean you get some wild shit every now and then but i mean for the most part a lot of the people that we're bringing in are really they're really working it you know and they're not trying to sabotage themselves and they're not you don't get to the level of being desired like they are by by being shitheads basically so uh, most of them are, are very professional and makes it easy for the rest of us you know do you feel confident now that even if you have challenges throughout the festival that it's not going to be enough to shut it down for the next year. Do you feel confident that it is now made its place in history to being an annual event, regardless of, of what happens this year? Yeah. I mean, we had, uh, we had a couple of, I mean, last year was really, really phenomenal. It was incredible. And to be completely honest, I had told myself at the beginning of last year that if it didn't go, like not just okay, but great. I wasn't gonna do it again. Mm-hmm. 
Um, because it's an incredible amount of work on my part. I mean, I work on this thing all year long. I don't make any money. I spend a lot of money to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, even with investments from, from Edgedells, I still shovel out a ton of my own money. And, you know, I don't think people realize that. I think a lot of even the bands that come in think that, you know, somebody else is making the money and sure. whatever. But it's um, so it's hard for me sometimes to to put in that much work and you know i've got little kids and bigger kids so they <laughs> they they pull a lot of my attention as well and mm-hmm. keep me distracted a lot of times as well so i don't get some things done but i think um i think for the most part we're at a place where i mean it was so so much fun last year i think we've got the best lineup this year that we've ever had uh, as far as like bands that are really really out in the scene doing it and the uh spread of genres these bands don't just appeal to all the same crowd i mean there we have so many different groups that overlap genres with a lot of other ones so for fans of music all around the midwest they're going to find multiple bands that they've heard of that they know of and that they like and they're going to find a ton of other bands that they had no idea about that they end up loving as well you went into 2017 Ragged Roots thinking that there's a potential that this might be the last one. What set that forward for you? Was it because you didn't feel that it was garnering the respect that you thought that it might? Did it feel like it was just too much work? What was, what was it? Were you just losing, losing luster with it? What, what made you think that way going into it? I think there was a lot of things. Um, the catalyst for me really was um, a friend of mine passed away at Reggae Roots 2015. Um, actually died while I was on stage. And we weren't very close friends, but I, I'm i the one that brought him out there. I, well, I didn't physically bring him out there, but I mean, he came out there to do volunteer work. He helped us put up gates and fences and stuff. And, you know, he had been there in previous years and never had any issues with any of that stuff. So. I didn't have concerns, but, but he died. And, um, and I was on stage when it happened and, you know, we saw, like, you could see the lights from the ambulances and stuff, but you didn't realize that it was even that because there was all kinds of other lights and stuff going on, you know? So it wasn't quite like we even understood anything about what was going on, but yet we could sense a very intense, weird vibe in the tent and under, you know, the crowd Mm-hmm. was super awkward and we didn't understand it because we couldn't see any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we just felt it though. And I played back-to-back sets actually. So I played with Old Soul Society and then with the Soapbox Project right mm-hmm. afterwards. So mm-hmm. I was on stage for a couple of hours. And uh, when I come off, the guy who I'm friends with, Tim, um, who actually brought Andy out there and was camping with him, he's like, he's said, Andy's gone, man. And I was like, oh, I'm sure he's out there somewhere. He's just, you know. Sure, yeah. Maybe he's out in the woods. Furthest thing from your mind. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, no, he's gone, man. And at this, well, he's saying this to me. I'm stepping down off the stage on these, you know, it was like a four foot up high stage. So like, um, it took me a little bit to get down. And I was watching what I was doing because there's lights everywhere. And I was was like slowly holding my Mm -hmm. guitar up, kind of paying attention to where my feet were going. And. And he tried to misstep and go tumbling down. He's telling me this. I'm looking at him, and all of a sudden, as I'm coming down, I'm realizing that those are lights 
coming from outside the tent and that there's an ambulance and all these cop cars there. Mm -hmm. And it was like, and then, uh, and at that exact moment, Levi from, um, Levi Kellogg with uh, Newport Jam were supposed to be starting up on the inside stage. And I had set my PA up in there and I went over everything with them ahead of time and they apparently had some problem. And he came running up to tell me about this problem with the PA and I'm like, I don't give a fuck. You know, like, right. I was just co- so overwhelmed by it all. But I, so I tried to, but I was also in shock. So like I walked past the fire truck and the ambulance and I went into the tavern or the saloon stage and I fixed the problem and I was super pissed because it was such an obvious thing that I had already gone over. But I was so mad at, for, I mean, really not a big deal. Mm-hmm. If that was just the thing by itself, I would have been like, you fucking idiot. We would have hugged and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I was really annoyed by that. And it was because of just being so completely discombobulated and out of place and out of sorts. Um, that was insignificant compared to yeah, what really happened. This guy just died. Not just some guy, but somebody I knew and um, the situation surrounding it. So, I mean, I had a a, a personal feeling about it. And then as well, you know, I was concerned about how it reflects on what we were trying to do and where we were growing this thing to. And and I was right because um, there was an election going on later that year and they, for like local and local politics, and they were doing, uh, some people were trying to use it as an example and as, as a platform um, against drug use and this and that. And I was like, this is not going to be one of those stupid points that we can't fight against where you can say you're an alcoholic and if i drank a beer i can't say no because if i say i'm not then you say i'm in denial and then mm-hmm. you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i'm not going to fall into that trap and i'm not going to allow that to happen and so like i went i had to go to a couple of of meetings that i i felt compelled to i didn't have to i felt compelled to uh to go and and make sure that we weren't being misrepresented and i i basically said hey you go around to any of these other festivals, and we don't have them around here, but you go to any of these other festivals, and I guarantee you this is the most solely about the music festival that you will find. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't promote drug use in any way. We don't, we 100% have always been about these bands and about the fact that these are unsigned bands, that these are independent bands from the Midwest region, you know, we're not just trying to throw a party here. We're trying to show, shine a light on something. We're not hiding away trying mm-hmm. to give people an opportunity to bang heroin. You know? Right. Um, and to suggest so is ridiculous, you know, and it's offensive. And um, so that was, you know, that had a major impact on me. Um, and then the following year, the venue was trying to open their new venue, the amphitheater venue next to Mm-hmm. To land and um through a series of circumstances we ended up having what should have seemed like the most amazing upgrade ever you know mm-hmm. we were going to bring in some big pro stages we were going to have we we got kaleo and at the time you know from the day that i that i secured that until the day they actually performed their cost tripled and their star was on the rise, and everybody that was trying to talk me out of that, uh, out of them, was like, "Wow, man, so credible!" And I was like, 
I'm the only one that had the vision for sure. And that was my friend, Jesse Turner. Um, you know, she had, she had sent me a thing about them. I didn't realize it before I would actually heard the song, but I didn't know what it was, but she sent me uh, a video of them and I started listening to them and watching their stuff. And I really got into them. Um, and so it was like, and she had been so helpful with, with what I was doing with old soul and with ragged roots and, and, and just really being a great support back end for me. And, uh, um, so I, th- I thought it'd be really not, I mean, I really wanted to see them and I wanted to have them there and everything too, but I thought it'd be a really nice gesture in, in her direction as well, that she would be like, no fucking way, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and be blown, blown away by it. And, um, and she was, and so were a lot of people, but, um, you know, that, so this is a brand new venue that we had no experience running, no idea of how it was going to run. We had major weather hit us literally at five o'clock day one, mm-hmm. a fucking storm came in mm-hmm. and it was like, we had the first three bands set up and we we're just going to peel away. So we were boom, 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 you know, five mm-hmm. minute downtime first three bands in the tent company never brought the sidewalls to the tent that was out there. So we had to strike all three bands right when it was about to start. Hmm. So that's how the festival started for me. <clears throat> and then it had rained so hard the next morning they were bringing, you know, the amphitheater wasn't even open that night yet, but we were, there was all the setup and all the rigs were coming in. So they were bringing mm-hmm. in these big trucks and they were just ripping the shit out of the hill and the, mm-hmm. and the drive back there. And, so it was just like all these really deep, you know, like two, three foot ruts, you know, really bad. And uh, they, uh, they, <laughs> testament to Kenny and his crew at Edge of Dells, they, uh, they rebuilt that entire road that morning, Friday morning. I've never <laughs> seen, I've never been so, I've never worked with so many people that can mobilize and, and accomplish such a great feat in such a short amount of time so perfectly. Wow. It was amazing to to witness and um but anyways, um so Friday, great, they rebuilt the road, no rain. In fact, no rain at all. Not a single drop, no shade, hundred and ten degrees. It was brutal out on that hill. Yeah, it was a hot weekend. And uh and it was humid because it had just poured the night before. So all day Friday when we actually opened the amphitheater we had gate people who weren't really hip to what's going on, turning people with water bottles away, saying they couldn't bring water bottles in, mm-hmm. um, which that I found out about and lost my shit because how can you deny water? Right. And, you know, the one girl was like, well, they could be bringing in vodka or gin. I was like, fucking let them then. They're going to die out here otherwise. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, I'm like, well, how, how hard is it for you to take a sip or take a sniff, I mean, and determine – whether it's gin, vodka, or water, because mm-hmm. I could tell immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I could probably tell you which brand. And if that's the only <laughs> thing that they're drinking in this heat, yeah, they get what they get. Yeah, they're dumb. <laughs> Anyways, then if they're <laughs> exactly, <laughs> um, so that was an issue. And then, uh, you know, obviously that affected our numbers because there were people that were there that just left because it was just too hot. Mm-hmm. So we spent a really good part of Friday coming up with a game plan for how we were going to handle it on Saturday. And we had slip and slides that we were arranging. We went and got all these kiddie pools that we were going to fill with ice and put all over the hill. We picked up umbrellas. We had, like, um, hoses that we were poking holes in. And went to bed Friday 
well, Saturday morning, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, went to bed with a feeling like we had a good grasp on what was going to happen and woke up to more rain. And it rained all day long. So we basically took four stages, had to turn them into two. Uh, it was a clusterfuck of schedules. Um, a couple of people graciously just said, we don't, we will will not play to make this easier on you for the people that have traveled. And mm-hmm. um, I was running and running and running. And we had such a large space uh, span of space too with the new venue and whatnot that, I mean, to say that the sky was falling was not an understatement. It was literally falling. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, I was pushing through, trying to shove through the crowd for like the fifth time in the bar. And I think Jaco was actually playing. And I couldn't get through. And uh, I was, I had an epiphany. It just made me real. I was like, wait a minute. This is horrible for me. This is horrible for a couple of people, but I can barely make it through this crowd. It's so packed with people having a great time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and then then in hindsight, later on, the uh, Kaleo ended up playing on the deck. Mm -hmm. And that was insane their contract they could have rolled right out of there mm-hmm. and they didn't they put on the show and it made for an experience you put all those people that would have been there and that were there out on the hill yeah great time put them on that deck unheard of experience mm-hmm. there were people on the roof like it was just really magical mm-hmm. but you know we had partnered with the radio station and the numbers didn't come back the way they wanted them so they were kind of pissed and the fact is is that we did spend an incredible amount of money on stages that didn't even get used sure and production and all that stuff um and and there was a major departure from what we had done before as far as focusing on regional up and coming and and independent acts by bringing in a um, national and signing and going to a bigger stages and everything. I think a lot of the people that supported us early on because of the grassroots vibe that we had felt that we had turned our backs on them and grown too much. And so they kind of turned their backs on us. And I caught a lot of heat, a lot of backlash from that. And um, it was the stress of it all of, of, of the year that was supposed to be the, the big redemption to make me feel better about the year before where Andy passed away. Sure. Um, ended up being such a complete clusterfuck in a roundabout way from the, on the back end of things from where I was sitting from production. Um, that I just didn't think I could take it anymore. Did you have the amphitheater going in 17? No. And you scaled it back for 17 then? Yeah. Cause I wanted to, um, I wanted to redirect our focus back to see here's one thing that a lot of the bands don't understand when they look at this and this is there's been an interesting angle to it because you know from the experience of it all having Cleo was great but the the reality is that we don't have that budget we didn't have the new venue budget coming back we didn't have the sponsorship with the radio station which was major um we didn't have the sponsorship from the from the distributors which was also major for the space of the venue mm-hmm. um so when we call people now, even like Horseshoes and Hand Grenades or Dead Horses and these bands that are represented by agencies, great bands, but but we focused at Midwestern, mm-hmm. you know, acts. And these guys are out of Appleton and Milwaukee area, Stevens Point, Milwaukee, collectively, whatever. But, uh, um, but they're agents. They have professional agencies, and they go on, and they see that we had Kaleo, and they know how much Kaleo is charging now, and they're like, oh, well, shit. Well, f-. So yeah. I actually... I'm constantly combating that, mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's actually kind of made life harder in, in the long run. Um, but but I wanted to scale it back. I d- I felt that the uh, size and scope of what we were trying to do was cool, and I was flattered and honored that they would put that in my hands. And if the weather had worked, we probably would have had an incredible time. Um, but I agreed with, you know, when you get into that, when you start dealing with bands of that caliber, the, uh, the flexibility goes away. Mm-hmm. It becomes very standard. This has to be this way and that's it. And this has to be that way and that's it. So you lose your flexibility a lot, which is one of the things that was kind of cool about what we were doing before. Um, because we didn't feel like we had to adhere to any certain standards, you know? Sure. Um, just whatever standards you had made for yourself. Just make sure that we have good sound and good lighting and a good space for people to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And the bands can hopefully have fun and do their thing, and it'll translate to everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I refocused at that model uh, for last year. We got a different size tent. We set the stage up a little differently. Um, a little bit different layout, but mm-hmm. we kept it close and we kept it tight again so that, you know, you didn't have to traverse a quarter of a mile from one stage to the next. Sure. Um, they all kind of are close enough to each other that you can get to anyone within a matter of minutes and without the overflow of sound in- intruding on the other stages. So, um... Last year was more of a throwback to what my original vision was, and it went off perfectly. And the bands were great. The crowds that came were great. I had some really amazing conversations and moments with some people. And being sober, I got to really appreciate and cherish some of that, um, you know, three in the morning sitting at the fire talking with a couple people type of thing. And I got to watch people, you know, whereas early on I was the guy at the campfire raging that shit all night long singing songs and you know and i really love the energy that happens at those community fires but um it was also great to me to see somebody like sam ness who had never been anything like that in his life like fully immerse himself into it and like he's kind of running the campfire jam for the one night and Mm -hmm. um and that empowered him in a way that you know it was incredible to see I just felt like there was an incredible amount of good, good energy, good people. We didn't have any bullshit. There was a crazy lightning storm that happened on Saturday night, and it flooded out kind of, but it wasn't like the whole thing. And 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 to be honest, like people weren't pissed about it. Like they were like, "Whoa, shit, that lightning's amazing," you know. Like, <laughs> and there was a couple of people that might have been like, "Oh, my shit's all wet," but whatever. At this point, you know, yeah, is what it is. Like, um, yeah. So I just. Very excited moving into this year, and uh, and like I said, I think we have the best lineup that that we've ever had as far as overlap for canvassing. Like we're not, we have bands from a lot of different regions, but instead of like a pocket of fans from this region and a pocket of fans from that region, we have bands that are touring and traveling all around, and they're they're not the same, so they're not drawn out of the same well. Sure, but many different wells and. The irony about the way that we used to do things was that the bands got paid tickets and then they would sell their tickets to their biggest fans. And who's more susceptible to digging a band than somebody else's favorite, you know, biggest fan already? Mm-hmm. 
Um, so you ended up with all these different bands bringing their tightest supporters to one place. And it just made, it was just a lot of support. <laughs> you yeah, know what sure, I mean? Sure, sure. And um, so it, and a lot of people met each other that hadn't met each other before. And all of a sudden they started supporting these other bands. And, and you know, for me it was like seeing people like, that don't see each other all year long, mm-hmm. that see each other face-to-face only at Ragged Roots, mm-hmm. and they're like, see each other after a couple of years now, and they're like, it's like a family reunion. And to know that, um, that like some kind of crazy dream and whatever is like help manifest that reality for some people, you know? Like uh, Sam Osborne and his wife flew out from Hawaii and Keith Klug came up from Florida mm-hmm. and like, what right <laughs> right right like it and 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 being in their presence and their energy is so uplifting and engaging that to know the distance that they came from to be there uh just gave it all more weight you know and i don't know it's just really incredible we have we have a really great kind of core family and we're we've grown and we're still growing and and i hope that we continue to do so but um we're not trying to jump over any hurdles. We're just taking the steps, you know what I mean? <laughs> when did you start playing guitar? I was about 17. Um, it's kind of late. Yeah, yeah. I had one um, I had one given to me, and I didn't... I felt like I needed to have lessons. I have a bad habit of if something... If, if I don't understand something, I overcomplicate it in my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people kind of reverse engineer my thought processes and explain things to me and and i'm like oh that's actually really simple but if i don't get it i get anxiety about not understanding it and make it worse (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so i prohibit myself or or inhibit myself from being able to get it um and i think that's how i felt about guitar for quite a while um i knew i loved it i knew i wanted to play it and i'd seen a few other people play it my cousin was married to a guy down in Texas that played guitar. And I remember them coming up and like, I didn't know this guy at all. It was like, I was meeting Jesus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like for at my age as a little kid, I was like, I was so excited and so nervous and, and, uh, just to be in a one-on-one situation where he was going to play a guitar and I was bringing mine with, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And, uh, and I still remember to this day, like the feeling I was at my grandma's house and like, I remember the nerves I felt and, um, but my dad had always played guitar and he gave me one when I was, uh, about 16. It was towards the end of my 16th year. Um, he gave me one that I had, I, he had, he had it for quite a while. He didn't do anything with it. And, I had lived up in lacrosse when I was 15 for a while and I played, uh, I played around on it. Never, I never learned any chords or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just would put delays on it, <laughs> smack the strings and shit. Mm-hmm. He gave that guitar to me and then I started, I had one and I, by that point, I, I don't know. I just kept playing it, kept playing it, kept playing it, played it all the time. Started to get, you know, figure out chord shapes and structures and started to, um, create my own songs, make up chords that I didn't know what they were at the time, but they sounded good. And, um, because I didn't have any lessons, 
uh, I think that's how I became a songwriter because I couldn't play anybody else's stuff and I could just make up my own things. And then I've always been, I mean, if you listen to even the, my earliest stuff up to what I'm doing now, it's very vibe stuff. You mm-hmm. know, there's, there's, um, it's not really complicated stuff, but it's all based on a feeling uh, and you can pick up a vibe right away from the music aspect of it. And I think that that, that's where I, that's that came from not having a teacher and just finding things that felt good to me um sounds that were unique or you know how many brothers and sisters do you have um i have two brothers and two sisters where do you fall in line with them well my older brother ryan and i um so i have one older brother and then myself and then um our mom and dad got divorced. Our mom remarried, and so I was eight when my uh, when my sister Emily was born, and then Abby, and then my younger brother Stephen. So, um, kind of middle, kind of the baby, also because we had such a gap in there, and then mm-hmm. also kind of the first one because my brother was gone a lot, and. Um, in our teenage years when the kids were starting to grow up and I was kind of around, um, I used to watch them a lot. I kind of had to babysit them a lot. Sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting. We're kind of middle, I guess. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. There's some psychology and all that. And we wonder about that too, because, um, like we've talked about with the gap between my kids Mm -hmm. and how they, how that whole middle child, first child, last child you know scenario presents itself and repeats and you know there's a lot there's a there's a 10 year difference between kaya and are yep so in that it's ten, actually 11 yep. okay so in that time period you're a different person too absolutely and the way that you maybe your patience is different Maybe your stamina is different, less, more, whatever. Maybe your when you learn tolerance things. is different. Yeah. I mean, and you just you, like, you know, there's a, I heard a joke. I don't remember where I heard it, but they, uh, they say with your firstborn kid, you know, you, you want to feed him the best everything and you, you know, you, you're going to top of the line, everything, you know, you name it. And then. Mm-hmm. And then your second kid, well, you know, like, oh, I, I remember what it is. They say, uh, so your firstborn kid would eat a handful of sand at the beach and you take them to the hospital, get their stomach pumped and like the whole nine yards, man, Listerine their mouth out, you know, like mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Your next kid eats a, a handful of sand and you're like, well, spit it out and rinse your mouth out, you know? And right. then your third kid eats a handful of sand and you're like, well, I hope that filled you up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, so th- there's a lot to that too. I think you, that, you know, what our fears and, and, you know, I used to live on edge when my first daughter was, um, like say walking, starting to walk and then walking near tables or mm-hmm. stairs, things like that, you know? Um, but I learned that you have to they have to make their mistakes. You can't sure. protect them 100% of the time. You got to let them fail. And uh, mm-hmm. it's been a very hard thing for me to learn, but I did learn that. And um, 
so my son Asher actually um he likes to climb things and I've told him a hundred times stay off of that and I keep telling him and you know to be fair I wasn't you know my mom told me a lot of times not to touch the stove and I didn't listen until I touched the stove mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and then I'll I don't touch the stove anymore mm-hmm. you know so there's a lot to uh them getting their own experiences and and forming their own opinions on why they should or should not do something and um but I, but my friend Rick Markley also has kids around the same age as my younger kids and as a first parent he would be at our house and my kids would be climbing on the couch and like fall off the back and he'd be like, uh, uh, you know, like freaking out about every sure. little crazy thing they'd be doing. And I'm just sitting there like oblivious to it. And he'd be looking at me like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what can I do? I can't live in a state of constant panic and fear. Like, obviously if he's got a knife out, I'm not going to let that go on, you know? Right. I mean? But he's going to have to fall off the couch a couple of times before he stops climbing on it. I can't live at the back of the couch making sure it's protected. You know, you can't, you can't understand the concept of how hot that frying pan is. <laughs> right. You really can't. We've all grabbed one. Yeah. Every one of us. I, I had thought over the Some years. Some a couple of times, but most <laughs> once. <laughs> I'd always thought over the years that parenting is really just, making sure that your kids don't eat broken glass and following around behind them and just cleaning up their messes. Yeah. And I think that to some extent it's true, especially when they're younger. You also want to do something. You also want to forge a path that they can either emulate or learn from in some, some ways. Yeah, and I've certainly learned a lot more about that. I mean, I, I how I perceived what my daughter was, my oldest daughter, Kaya, was picking up from me. Um, was completely false. She looked at me a lot more than I realized. She paid a lot of attention to what I did, a lot more than I realized. And um, it wasn't until years later that that became apparent to me. And that was actually one of the one of the things that helped motivate me to quit drinking and to stay um, sober. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and I'm conscious of that in how I deal with my younger kids now. And obviously, you know, things have changed. I'm a different person, and and my anxieties are a little off the charts sometimes just from fluctuations in blood sugars and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I try to be conscious of if I feel like I'm getting bent out of shape for something that I can objectively look at and say, that's not a big deal. Right. Then I got to stop. I got to stop myself. So I'm not creating the scenario where I'm yelling at my kids for, you know, because I don't want them to walk around on pins and needles, you know, and, and I've seen it happen a few times already where, I, like, I'll say something and my daughter will be like, oh, are you mad? And mm-hmm. I'm like, no, why? Mm-hmm. And it's because I set a precedent for how I would react to certain things or something. So um, I've tried really hard to to, to do that. And, and I work from home. So I all the bookings I do, all you know, I'm running the uh, the Ragged Roots thing as well as I got um, doing the, uh, the direction for the festival portion of... Uh, between the Waves Festival and Madison now um, and putting on events like Art in the Dark and things like that that I mean there's a lot of moving parts and you have to pay mm-hmm. attention and, and you have to know some things and then I'm working with you know like 50 different artists believe it or not I I actually started making a list today and collecting like a spreadsheet to collect important information that I need on people email addresses and to make it easy for someone else if they have to help me with something sure and uh, I realize I'm working with 50 artists right now. Um, and 
and I'm multiple different venues too. I think I have eight different venues I'm doing bookings for. And some of those venues are like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Some are just Friday and Saturday. Some are just Wednesdays, you mm-hmm. know, in different cities. And I have to make sure that I'm not routing somebody somewhere they were just at. And, you know, so there's a lot of dynamic and a lot of things that I have to be conscious of and think about. And I'm constantly getting distracted trying to work at home, not having a, an office space mm-hmm. um, makes it really hard. And I actually just had a couple of, of mistakes happen recently because I didn't write the thing down that I would always write down first because my daughter decided she needed to pull a Band-Aid off her knee that she didn't need in the first place. <laughs> um, and she had to take it off right then, but she needed help because it hurt. And she was doing it real slow and just having a meltdown. And, you know, stuff like this just happens. I can't sure. decide to put that off or whatever. You know what I mean? So then I didn't write something down. And by the time the whole ordeal was done, I forgot. Mm-hmm. And some you actually tipped me off when you're like, well, maybe we can catch up on Saturday before your gig. And I was like, right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Um, I actually ended up being free that night. And you were able to get Lucas birch to play that gig for you i have to tell you what was so he was actually originally scheduled to play that night really and i double booked another thing so i switched it with him okay i asked him if he could switch because i there was no other dates that i could do Mm -hmm. and um they were like well we really want to get you back in and i was like well the only date that i have open would be the fifth i'll ask lucas and if he's able to and he said he was so I just switched it with him. That's interesting. But I didn't write it down. Okay. See? So Well I did I did manage to get out. I'm I'm really horrible about getting out. And this is in my own town. I'm really horrible about getting out. And I know that you can relate to this. When you're not playing, you don't want to be on. And when you go out, even though you're not playing, you still have to be on. To some extent, yeah. It's um, it's an expectation. And so I I breezed in a little bit late. It's kind of my style <laughs> to show up a little bit late when something's going on. So I'm not there beforehand and then I can I can maybe be gracious about uh it's it's gonna sound jerky, but when you walk in somewhere and they're like, Hey, you know, do you wanna come up and play a few or whatever? And you're kinda like, Oh, you know, I'm I, I've had kind of a busy day or something, or you just go ahead, you know, you're doing good. You got a good crowd here, you know, that sort of thing. And then depending upon what the vibe is, you might be like, yeah, 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 I'll come in and play, which was the thing with Lucas. He asked me if I wanted to play and I ended up playing like three songs with him. Oh, great. But, um, I really love what he's doing. He's oh, he's, great he's great. He's great. But it was, it was a, it was a good time. Um, the venue can, the venue has some room to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't really get into that too much. The venue has some room to grow, though. I'll just say that much. And it was it was an enjoyable evening. I would have probably gone to see you had you gone, and I probably would have shown up late, like I did with him. But, um, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was unfortunate that you weren't there, but Lucas really held it down. So Yeah, he's he's really got some good stuff going on. and I, uh, He's one of those guys that, you know, I, I throw him – gig offers fairly often and he's not really able to do a lot of them mm-hmm. um so yeah i kind of get excited when a booking works out with him <laughs> yeah yeah he he's <coughs> he's really talented and he has the ability to play to the crowd 
he's 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 working it. He's he's working well, on it, and and you know he's pretty he's pretty new at it. Well, so. you know what struck me about him right off the out of the gate was that a um, him and I talked many times before I ever knew that he even played. Mm -hmm. He didn't push that out there. He wasn't like, oh, I played too, man, and da -da -da. like mm -hmm. we just bullshitted, and it was like. We didn't even really talk about music all that much, you know, it was just like random other stuff or whatever. But um, so that was one thing that when I found out he played, I was like, what the hell? You know, it kind of shocked me. And um, in, in a really pleasant way, because he's really good. He's very comfortable and natural. He doesn't sound contrived in any way. Mm -hmm. And um, and, you know, when you get to the fact that he doesn't take on a lot of gigs and he doesn't, like, try to prioritize doing that stuff and getting that immediate feedback that a lot of musicians need, um, that speaks volumes to me as far as authenticity and, and, and passion and drive and what he's doing it for. I think they're all the right reasons. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I have a lot of respect for him, and I think he's... I'm really glad that uh, that you had Kettle and Cupper. I never would have met him properly, so... Yeah, there were... Recently, I was having a conversation with a group of people, and they were bemoaning the loss of the coffee shop. And I really appreciate that. And someday, probably, we'll all talk less and less about it, right? But Well, I don't think so. I think, you know, I just have to say, for, for those that, that got it, it was a very special, special place. And I wish that, uh, that this community would have got it more as an overall i just don't think that you know there's so many people that's that can bemoan you about how much they miss it but were they there supporting it as often as they could have it's I mean, i'm not trying to throw stones i'm just no, saying. no no but it's hard to have that expectation of people what i what i said in this conversation that i had and it was a group of about five of us and it was it was a number of us and then Lori and i and this was after another event and i said what i can look back at is the friends that we made while we were there and the connections that we made and the experiences that we had and i can i can benefit from those i do benefit from those and i can appreciate those and i can be grateful to have those things i could sit around and say i spent 5 years of my life x amount of dollars X, X amount of dollars. And, you know, I'm, triple X, it's an obscene amount of dollars. Dude, <laughs> I, I was in the hospital because of running my own business. I was, um, I mean, it, it was, it was hard. It was really difficult. When you go into business, people talk about the, uh, the stress and, and it's true. There's an insurmountable sometimes amount of stress involved in it. But they don't talk about the physical, uh, the physical challenges of doing it. You know, working seventy hours a week, that sort of thing. Um, but that notwithstanding, I could go, I could go into that, or I could just look back at it and say these were some really good things that happened. Right. And Justin Woods recently came up to us and said, "Would you be interested in doing it again?" And we're like, "No, no, not at all. We can't. A, we can't afford it. I mean, we had." we had put a lot of money into it that was money set aside for other purposes b we we put in a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of heart into it and it's hard to muster that sort of thing again and he's like well what if somebody else 
put it up for you? What if somebody else put up the money for you? What if somebody else did this? And, and man, it rocked us for a moment. I mean, for a minute we sat there and, and talked about it and it's, 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 it's hard to, it's hard to put yourself back out there, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I think the moment that you have to, the struggle with that comes in the fact that you have found yourself with good employment with a great company. Mm-hmm. Um, you're respected. You're you're compensated. Um, you put in seventy hours there, and you'll get the exchange. You'll get the the feedback. Right. You know. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Um, you have insurance. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's 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 so much good about what you're doing now mm-hmm. that. I mean, you'd be, I mean, you'd be a fool to not, uh, you know, I get the, the dream aspect of what it is, but I mean, you, you know, as well as I do that it's not like you're slugging at some shithole job now (laughs) and if somebody would put you up with a coffee shop, you'd take it in a heartbeat. I mean, you have legitimate and, and, and you know, that going into business again, no matter what the situation is, it's going to be somebody else putting the money up. Still, there's a potential for that to be that rug to be pulled out from under you. And I don't yeah. feel that that's something that that you're going to experience working with Peak. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? No, I get it. And they and have growth ahead of them. As rewarding as as rewarding as there were moments in running the shop, we were pretty damn broke, <laughs> a lot, and. When I look back at, at with fondness over the things that did happen, I got to remember those times when, when, you know, literally dragging change across a counter is what was going to, you know, cover our food for the next few days. Or, um, you know, the, the undercurrent of stress. Now, you mentioned the anxiety that you experience being an insulin dependent diabetic. And a lot of that comes from, that undercurrent of where am I at? Where's my health at? How am I feeling? What's going on? Same thing. It's that undercurrent of where is the money? Lack of security, lack of confidence. How am I going to pay for the house? Your foundations. Yeah, exactly. And that on top of all of the other things, oh, the kid is sick. Oh, you know, the dog made a mess in the living room. Uh, The car's making a weird noise. But then underneath it is still that, that staticky, you know, money, 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 yep. money, money, and and it was just it was just too much. That that undercurrent, and maybe maybe some people don't don't have that. Maybe maybe there are people who don't experience that sort of thing. But that undercurrent, it's 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 way better for me well, <laughs> to the, have somebody else have that and deal with that than me. I have aged more in the last couple of years <laughs> than I have in mm-hmm. all of my years combined. Um, just because of that mental, like the mental aspects to what, you know, for me, it's like my blood sugars fluctuate. My eyesight changes daily, mm-hmm. literally, mm-hmm. like based on my blood sugars. I'm horrible at balance, keeping my blood sugars in control. And part of that is because I don't have a pump or anything. I, I am supposed to test myself via my fingers and I play guitar for a living. Sure. So if you can imagine if they recommended on the low side of things, five pricks a day, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, it's still forty pricks on yeah. just a couple of fingers here that you can utilize every week. Mm-hmm. So you go numb real quick. Mm-hmm. And when when it affected my ability to play guitar, 
was when I was like, well, kill me now, you know? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what kind I mean, there's, and, and granted I, I'm, there's more I could do and more I'm working on doing right now to, to help combat that and and get myself on track and, and sustaining a, uh, uh, maintaining a healthy blood sugar level. But, um, but there's a lot of, you know, my mentality is, has a lot to do with quality of life as well. And, you know, if I can prolong my life to a hundred, but I'm miserable for 60 of those years, <laughs> what, sure. why do I want to be a hundred? You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, um, my motivators and what I'm trying to do now is because a, I, I think I need to know that if I balanced my blood sugar for a sustained amount of time, I would know if the anxiety is a side effect or become who I am. Um, sure. so that's one. And number two is that I feel, um, why would I want to be a hundred? The only answer I could give to that is that my children will be 90 and I'll get to see them, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, the truth is, is that there's not a day that goes by that one of them doesn't just absolutely blow my mind with something they say or something they do or, you know, just random stuff. I might just overhear something or whatever, you know, or see something that my daughter built sitting on the table and just look at it and know the intent, you know, that she put into it. Um, that stuff is really, really kind of bubbling up um, for me. Um, I don't want to say bubbling up because it's always been a focus in my life. It's always been something that I've cared very much about and and prioritized. But to the point now where before I think I, w- I was kind of like, well, I have to show my kids that, you know, you have to put into action your pursuit of your dreams. And so I, so for me to not take these gigs is me failing to show them this and that. But then I also am, the point I'm getting to now is where, like I said, with not taking the second gig that day mm-hmm. means that I don't have to stress. I I can instead go home or go do something with them and show them that I'm still pursuing my dreams, but I'm not killing myself chasing them and showing them that, that um, you know, at the end of the day, we have bills to pay, but none of that, I mean... Are they gonna are they gonna look back and say, Man, Dad, you know, when I was a kid, I sure am glad that you took that second second gig. So yeah. That, exactly. Know. And you know I try very hard. <laughs> I'm this sounds funny to say. I don't go out of my way to stay poor, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I try very hard to show my kids that money is not the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you if you allow society and, and all the influences around us to dictate um, your worldviews or your philosophies on how you treat people and other, you know, yourself and um, appreciation for the earth and the things that you do have, I think that if you allow all those things in, you won't have, you'll have no real substance in your life. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I try very hard to, to get my kids to be who they are and have confidence in who they are and what they're, you know, like I said, like Ariana's got crazy energy and she will, she, and she's very, very incredibly smart and manipulative and she knows 
that she's derailing me sometimes when she's doing it and she's doing it on purpose and I can tell. And, uh, but at the same time, whereas before I would snap on her, I'll be like, tell you what, let me get this, this, and this done and I'll take two hours off and you'll have my undivided attention. Mm-hmm. And then you got to let me get back to work for another two hours after that. Then mm-hmm. you know what I mean. So we're finding balances in that respect. And then, um, and the other thing is too, like I said, I mean, she's man, what a lucky kid. She's she's not too swayed by opinions mm-hmm. of other people, and she's got a very creative, artistic mind. And I think that if I tried to turn her into someone who lives within a box that allows me to function. Mm-hmm then I will have ruined her life and all the amazing things about, you know, Mm -hmm. her freedom of mind and expression and all that. So it's very important to me to try to keep that balanced. You know, you can't just be crazy all over the place all the time, you know, right. Right. But, but don't ever lose it. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh, that's hard. It is. It's incredibly hard. There's a, but it's a balance. I mean, I think all things in life really are a balance and, um, learning more to apply that philosophy than just to think it is is benefiting me in ways that I'm um really grateful for. You said your dad played guitar. Mm-hmm. Your older brother never picked it up? No. Was did your dad ever offer it to him? Yeah, well, honestly, my dad um I don't think he He's very, very supportive uh, of what I do now, and in in there was a shift years back. But um, I think early on, especially, he just thought I was some jackass making noise, and he didn't like like he was playing some serious stuff and putting thought into some real things. We didn't work together, you mm-hmm. know. What I mean, um, it was only after I made my very first recordings um, that he heard the potential and they weren't great but he but but they were my songs and mm-hmm. the fact that i wrote these songs and they had changes and and lyrical content that was not like you know very sophomoric or whatever i mean there was there was some stuff in there and i think that for the first time you know to give somebody one of the amazing things about recording is that y- you can allow somebody to take your music to their own space mm-hmm. and their own time and they can digest it however they choose and oftentimes the connections are made there not on the stage sure do you know what i mean mm-hmm. i mean there's an energy exchange that you see on the stage but the depth of how people perceive and receive music um i think comes through a pair of headphones <laughs> you know sure and uh in an isolation mm-hmm. type of scenario mm-hmm. yeah they listen to music but they go see a show right Exactly. Yeah. So I think that um, once my dad had the opportunity to hear something that I like to really on his own time without maybe me sitting there looking at who, what his reaction will be or mm-hmm. any of that, um, I think it was the first time he finally like gained some respect for what I was doing. I think up to that point, I was just like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I kept picking up his guitar for a year and he never offered it to me until after I left. And then he's like, oh, I, it was probably in the way of another one that he was getting for himself. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, shit, have this, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to, t- I mean, I'm forever eternally grateful. Um, sure. It, because without that, I never would have had the 
opportunity to spend all the time I did and I never would have developed into a writer and you know who's this mm -hmm. I mean I'm sure I would have figured it out somehow and still got my hands on it but you know I think all the pieces fell into place as they have and sure. I'm pretty happy with it um but yeah he didn't push my brother towards it either and um you know we really didn't have um a, a very close connection growing up so I moved up there when I was 15 <clears throat> and uh and I played on the thing because he had it there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. it, but I remember, like, I still remember when I was a little kid, like, a couple of times that we might have an overnight or something, and he would, like, play, like, Peter and the Wolf and stuff like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, I remember that stuff, and it always captivated me. So is he part of a uh, folk scene then? Um, He listens to a lot of stuff now. Okay. He's, he's turned me on to so many great great bands and great artists and um he's so, really but what was he playing then oh at the time yeah. um <clears throat> i don't know like he uh van morris and stuff and um classic rock jams you know mm -hmm. he's uh john cougar mellencamp rumble seat okay okay <laughs> you know um when he when he was in high school, he played bass for a couple of bands, and I have since um, had other people who have talked to me about that um, outside of him knowing or, you know, mm -hmm. or them even seeing him just be like, oh, that's your dad. Oh, yeah, I remember he played bass and da, 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 you know, like, mm -hmm. um, but he's never really serious. He's just guys fucking around, and he's always, he was one of those guys who is very career-oriented and very financially fixed on, um, you know, obtaining the riches of the world and and those things and and leisure activity and stuff so um yeah i don't i think that he probably could have progressed further himself if he had not um kind of pushed it to the side and let it be just a little hobby for him mm -hmm. um it was a profoundly proud moment for me when uh like the first time he asked if I could help him figure out a song that was like a major, like he gave me the respect, mm -hmm. you know, that I, that I was, that my work was worth something. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course <laughs> in the, in the hooch era, um, he, he was, he was a, he's retired now, but he was a police officer for a long time. Mm. And, um, you know, he would, he was so excited to get backstage passes and stuff like that to like go on, like on the bus with us and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so it was really like cool for him to be so proud of our success and, and to, um, I think at that point things really, you know, it was, it was funny cause we'd be like, you can have the backstage pass, but you can't actually come back here <laughs> or, you know, like, um, there were, there were times and I don't, you know, I can't say this for sure. Um, but there were times when like we were on the bus and we all want to smoke some weed or something. And, and my dad would like take a nap <laughs> and then wake up like 20 minutes later and, you know, shit like that where, you know, out of sight, out of mind, if he was sleeping, he can't, you know, right. he can't, he wasn't violating his oath that he took, but it's, you know, type right. of thing. Right. Um, I can't prove that at all and it's not easy sleeping in vehicles but um but i don't know it's just there's a frequency there that i just 
<laughs> well, if I were to do the math, you're a parent now. Yeah, put yourself in his position. Yeah, well, I mean, from a parent standpoint, it wasn't an issue. We told, we joke about it. I mm-hmm. mean, he, honestly, I, I think that he smoked weed when he was younger, and and you know, um, we've made jokes about, you know, if I smell like it or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and. In that same respect, I've also, um, you know, I, I talk, I've talked to my kids about it, my older kids about it and stuff, and I kind of give them the, um, well, I just explain to them, like, you know, as with anything, even the sunburns when you get too much, but mm-hmm. the thing is, is that, you know, if you had to choose any one thing that you were going to do, this would be the thing I would recommend, um, but I don't recommend it, and I don't recommend it now. Because your brain's not fully developed, your body's not fully developed, and this stuff hinders all of that, you know. Um, and I talk to them about what it is to appreciate something versus what it is to have an escapism mentality. You know, if your reason for wanting to smoke or to do anything is because you're trying to mask or bury something or feelings... Well, then you're screwed and you've got greater issues than the weed you're smoking, you know what I mean? As with anything, the more... The more you do it, the less you appreciate it, number one, mm-hmm. for what it is. So mm-hmm. why would you do that to yourself? You know, what makes things great? It's because you don't ha- have it all the time. Um, right. Um, you know, but I also had to have a, a talk with my daughter. Um, she made the realization uh, a few years back that I smoked pot. And she started having a real big attitude with me about it and... It was really hard for me to deal with because I I didn't want to encourage it, but I also could not lie to her about it, and I, and and further that I couldn't further perpetuate propaganda about it. Sure, you know, and I, so I said, all right, let's let's talk, and she's all mad at me, and I was like, what are you, so, you know, what are you what are you mad at? She's like, well, you take smoke pot, and I was like, so why are you mad about that? She's like, because it's a drug, and I was like, what else are drugs? walk around the house here start mm-hmm. picking things out you know mm-hmm. i started pointing to all these different things and i started talking to her about pharmaceutical companies and and natural things and you know making those comparisons and <clears throat> i said you know it helps me with my anxiety it helps me with my appetite i don't sleep well i have a lot of issues that it actually helps me with um i'm not like a recreational user in the sense that like I don't smoke and be like, oh man, I'm so crazy out of it. We'll go do some crazy shit now. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. it, it's it's it has calming effects on me, and um, I think a lot of times too, I have so many different ideas and things racing through my head, and it becomes a jumbled up knot that this you know can slow it down for me a little bit and give me some ability to decipher a few of those uh, lines of thought. But uh, but yeah, we had a lot of different talks. Uh, uh, we t- you know discussed kind of every angle of it and mm-hmm. the downsides of it as well. And um, but I think the moment that got her to, I guess, not be mad at me or not to have an attitude outwardly to me was when I uh, when I told her that I smoked her whole life. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, nothing's changed except you just know it now. Mm-hmm. So. Was I a piece of shit when I was doing this for your birthday? Was I, you know, like, and uh, I think at that point she, she looked at things and, you know, she's had to deal with 
I was still drinking pretty heavily when she was younger and she's, she's grown up seeing me, um, you know, in some pretty shitty places and her mom has struggled with a lot of that stuff as well. And so I just wanted to give her as much information, like true information as I could about it. And, uh, but yeah, my dad was a dare officer. So he was like preaching that marijuana is as bad as heroin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, fundamentally I think he even, started to hate what his job was and and transitioned away from that into the gang unit but um because you know we realized the the pitfalls of the way that the, the way that the stuff works is that if you tell kids that heroin and weed are the same thing and the kid tries weed one time and realizes it's not that bad what's going to stop him from trying heroin then right i mean it sounds that's a dramatic way to put that but i'm just saying like it's why, why and why would they trust you in anything else that you say? Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's really, really hard because I I feel like by explaining why I used it, I had to also do it in a way that didn't feel like I was condoning it or pushing my daughter towards me being okay with her doing it. Do you know what I mean? I think for me, when I reached an age where I could remember my parents being that age. That was a real game changer for how I parented at that point. Because first off, I realized that, and I say this with the most respect to my mom, she didn't know what I thought she knew about life. Right. I had this huge expectation for... These pedestals that we put them on, right? Exactly. And... I I felt so I felt so sad because I put her on I put her on that pedestal and man was I harsh. You make her feel like she's not good enough because of your expectations versus who she was and what she was trying and striving to do. Well, even even whether That's or not how I she feel was about my mom as well. I mean same same type of situation. 100%. Whether or not she was even trying, I felt like she she knew better. And then when I reached that age, it's like, mm, she was still having to make it up as she went along the same way that I am. Yeah. So I applaud you for being transparent with your daughter about it and whether or not, you know, so many people of the, of the previous generation, previous to ours, they just closeted everything, right? Much, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and 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 you kind of did that for a while. I mean, your daughter—it it, was—it was—it was strong for you to make that statement to her because your daughter could have taken it to say, "Well, then you have lied to me my whole life, or what else have you been keeping from me?" You know, and maybe that—maybe some of that came out. I don't—I don't know, but you know, it was—it was a—it was, was a real make or break part of your relationship with her to 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 be that candid. Well, you—I mean, you've seen—you know, kind of how how we are. We we're. We have the dynamic. She's my daughter. I'm her father. There's a respect level there. But at the same time, you know, I've I've never wanted to, like, talk down to her too much. And um, I feel that she she's just as much of a human being in person as, as anybody else is. And she has a, a level of respect that she deserves as well. And um, now a difference in style and parenting is that when Kaya was younger, 
we never told her about Santa Claus. We never said anything about it. Um, we explained that, you know, Christmas was celebrated based on this Christian um, holiday based on uh, Jesus' birth and explained who Jesus was and explained who Saint Nick was and the fact that somebody really did go around giving stuff out to people who didn't have stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, like we we told her all those stories. We just couldn't tell her that Santa was some guy was breaking into our house and giving her stuff. And no, and we wanted credit anyways. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> no, that's not true, but um, it is a pretty absurd story, though. Otherwise, no, it's it's absolutely crazy. And then to think about like, so you mean they're watching me mm-hmm. all year long, no matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing. Like that's that's paranoid inducing shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but Kaya was the type of kid who she felt um, kind of honored to have been given that respect to know the truth. And so when other kids her age would say stuff, she'd be like, yeah. And she kind of like, almost like you'll learn one day, you know, Mm -hmm. type of thing. But she never, never hinted at all to anyone that she didn't believe or that it wasn't real, even though she knew a hundred percent. And when she knew no one was around, she would address it with us. But, um, um, I think that's, and, and for the record, I knew that Santa was real. I knew it. (laughs) (laughs) and uh and i don't hold or harbor any ill will or negative feelings towards my parents for lying to me either you know what i mean so Mm -hmm. that wasn't really our reasoning we just um it really kind of came down to i think that i'm just so concerned about the capitalist society and what it's teaching our kids in the spiral that we're in now is like a deeper drop than we've ever experienced i feel like and now granted Maybe my grandparents would say the same about my generation. I don't know. But I do feel like there's a, an advance that's not as much of an advance as we think. But it's like there's major, major shifts in um, society in general. And I think, you know, with her being born shortly after uh, the terrorist attacks in the end of 9-11 and how all of that affected us in a way, you know, for me it wasn't, I didn't go Toby Keith on it and want to put a boot up anybody's ass. And it was a stark, um, like the first time that we had been slapped back is how I took it. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. these people didn't come here because we did nothing. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, and that all is based in all of those things at the end of the day is based in finances and money and greed. And, um, so it's very important to me coming out of that immediate, like slap in the face, uh, to, I guess our, the realization for me was always there, but it made it real. It made it really real all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Like, like I was saying, like you can have philosophy, but until you put it into action or you actively work towards or against that thing, then I, um, it's kind of pointless, you know? And, uh, so I just didn't like, I, I didn't want my daughter to, to, I want her to value and appreciate the value of things, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And to know that, that we're poor and we worked our ass off to get that thing for you. And we did it because we love you. Mm-hmm. 
and because we want you to enjoy things that you enjoy, <laughs> you know. It's not fear-based. Yeah, exactly. It's not fear-based. It's love-based. Yeah, but I'll take it away if you don't listen. <laughs> 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 you know, but yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not... Uh, I didn't see you every single day. I wasn't peeking in your windows. I don't have any little elves, um, you know, but I did see many days, <laughs> many nights, and you're pretty good for most of them. <laughs> Ragged Roots is the first time I'd ever seen Luke Jorgensen play. And I want to take a few minutes to to hear what you have to say about Luke and about your friendship with him, and to put words in your mouth, I'm going to. I want to hear you tell me what a great guy he was, because he was a great guy. Yeah, he he really was. Um, well, the first time I I met Luke, I had just moved to Lacrosse from New Mexico, and I was working at this place in and he was playing uh, at a place called Pearl Street Pub. I was walking home from work, and I heard uh, Sublime. And I stuck my head in this place, and there was Luke and my friend Casey were jamming. And uh, I sat down, and I was like, these guys are pretty good. And uh, I sat, had a couple beers, and then I switched to rum. And next thing you know, I was hammered. And those guys took a break, and I went up and started mentioning how I just moved here, and I play guitar, and blah, 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 blah. And uh, I asked him if he could play, and he looked at me, and he said, fuck no. And I was like asshole i bet we'll be friends <laughs> but uh <laughs> that was kind of like our first experience and so it was it was interesting later um so the way that we so we had known each other um through the years and stuff but then when i moved to madison um he was had been living down there already for a while and he started showing up at my gigs and just kind of chatting with me about stuff and music and kind of like we we knew so many of the same people and we were from the same area spent a lot of time in the same region but yet we hadn't really ever worked together mm -hmm. and so type of thing i think he was more interested in who i was as a person and how what made me tick um he already knew about hooch and had seen us many times and um you know I mean, he knew you know like that i could play um through coming to more of my shows and we you know kind of realized that uh, i think he, he got more of an appreciation for the fact that i write and um as same for me to him um i started that's when he turned me on to uh some of his recordings and told me he basically forced me to yeah i told you i lost those two recordings those two records I was mm -hmm. done. I was done recording. I was done putting my heart and soul into something that was never going to become something and I couldn't deal with the heartache of losing it again and Right. You know, so he really whittled me down for a while about recording, got me in. He just like brought all this gear to my house for no money just to record because he started um, he was like, what about this song? He, after my gigs, he would like grill me about certain songs. And then he found out the majority of the ones he was asking me about were songs I had written. He was mm -hmm. like, what the hell, man, you got to record this. You don't have that on a record. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, 
you know, through through that, he starts showing me examples of his work, and I realize he's an incredibly talented producer and engineer. Um, but I also found out he was an incredible songwriter and a much better singer than he gave himself credit for. And um, so incredibly humble and gracious person. I mean, he he had no... He had nothing to gain from offering to record me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He had nothing to gain from driving all over Madison to show up at any of my gigs that I was doing anywhere around there and to sit and talk to me and give me a, the confidence talk that I needed mm-hmm. um, to get back towards the idea of recording. Um, so he did all of that for me. And then collectively, once I had formed. Um, old soul society you know by that point um was leaning towards bringing him in as like he was very helpful early on with ragged roots and what my vision was and we shared a lot of the same vision about what music and community is and what music can do to community mm-hmm. and the communities it creates within itself and um um the energy and connections and the bonds that are formed and through music and you know all that stuff was was very we were both very much aligned with that way of thinking. And um, I was actually talking about how uh, how Ragged Roots was losing its identity and starting to become bigger. And um, so I helped him start this thing that he called the Whiskey Onsen Family Reunion. And uh, I booked Jayco for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and that was kind of an attempt to get back to that thing, and then he transitioned that to into Madison, and then that ended up kind of getting taken over by Between the Waves when he merged with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so him and I had a very unique relationship in the sense that we could, we both were working on the same types of things um, as far as festivals and in events and trying to put people together and in the networking and community nature aspect of of um of the scenes connecting the scenes and all that stuff and um you know sometimes we would call each other up and be like man can you believe this asshole like they want they said that they need this and this and this and you know they mm-hmm. just played here and you and I both know they only do this there and you know, sure. So yeah. there's no way this asshole's getting what he's demanding from right. me. But why is he putting me against the fire? You know. Um, and other times it'd just be like some exciting booking or a cool new venue or a great new sound guy or so, you know just random shit. We would just constantly uh, throw ideas off each other and shoot each other's ideas down and mm-hmm. you know different mm-hmm. you know pr- encourage each other in ways. That, um, but and that was one aspect to what he did. He really found. Um, he really found a, a a niche in his ability to lift other people up and to connect them and to give them confidence in ways but you know he was also uh, he was also a grumpy dude sometimes just kind of like out of the blue and <laughs> i know uh like we were talking about earlier kind of like if you make things complicated i'm done done mm-hmm. with you <laughs> right he, he could be like that with people too 
mm-hmm. you know, and it's not that he didn't try. It's just at a certain point, done. On to the sure. next, you know what I mean? But he never, uh, I mean, he 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 was always, like I said, showing up with microphones and gear and stuff and, and trying to record and mix stuff with me. And, and you know, once I formed Old Soul Society, he um, um, kind of made the decision that the all the stuff that we had worked on and recorded stuff with Corey and the thing that I was telling you about mm-hmm. was not who we were and that it would be even though the stuff was almost done there's no avenue to release it mm-hmm. that would do justice to what we're currently doing or what we had done sure um both so he, even though he had put in all this time and effort and money even uh into recording this thing with me he just was like let's scrap it let's do a real project let's do a you know and he didn't just motivate everybody and get us all on board with pre-production meetings and like kind of nailing some things down and giving some direction to the project but he you know once we had the space figured out where we were going to do this recording he went in and found like he researched ways to really like to incorporate the room to make us have that warm sound to to give it a live feel without it sounding chaos live and you know a lot of people are confused about what that record is the farmhouse sessions because some people think that it's uh the best live recording they've ever heard or the shittiest studio recording they've ever heard (laughs) and it's somewhere in the middle of those i think you know Mm. it it was mostly live we did some overdubbing later you know a couple souls and harmonies and stuff but for the most part, the bulk of it was live, and and the way that that worked is because of how much time and effort and dedication Luke put into to figuring out how to capture the room as part of our sound, hmm. the whole space. You know what I mean? And when you listen to that, you'll hear like the creak of the floorboard or something like where the piano is sitting and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And that's you know that's stuff that might drive you ape shit if you were trying to not let any of that in, but he found ways to incorporate it that made it like pan it hard and bury it, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. And it gives you this, it's like those, it's like those white noises and those frequencies that nobody really knows exists until they're gone. Right. And then like, Oh man, I I feel better even right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was really great at that. He was such an incredible person too with ideas of harmonies and, and random like riffs. Like I get stuck in when I write a song, this is how I play the song and that's my part. Mm-hmm. And he would have me go back through and do a pass on the acoustic and then do do a pass in this register now. And, um, you know, like we'll just try it. If it sucks, we'll, we won't use it. Mm-hmm. But I'd rather have it and not use it than not have it and want it, you know? Right. Uh, and that was his philosophy on a lot of things but i'll tell you he um he i had a an ambition to start recording and doing some stuff and he gave me his old computer he had a g5 mac he just like gave me for like 200 bucks Hmm. um and actually he i insisted that he take money he was gonna just give it to me but I was hmm. like, I can't, no, no, no. You know? Sure. I still felt like I was getting a hell of a deal at 200 bucks for a G5, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, that wasn't so prehistoric. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he uh, 
kept working with his band as well. He got got his own group together and he started working on more and more music themselves. And um, prior to him passing away, he was at his physical best and his mental best, I think, that I'd ever known him. Um, and I think that that's part of where the problem was because, you know, even though he was making active choices for the last couple of years to, to be healthier and to do, uh, less damage to himself, he had still already done damage for years and, and irreparable damage as it turns out. So, Mm -hmm. um, there were a couple of red flags that he maybe, if he wasn't as stubborn as he as he was, maybe would have paid more attention to or acted. But you know, here's the thing about Luke is that he was incredibly humble. He didn't want anything to be about him or the focus to be on him. And if if he was gonna like, I, geez. like if he was gonna have a heart attack, he wouldn't want people worrying about him. Hmm. He'd be like, oh, just go do your thing. I'll figure this out, you know, type of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of the scenario that happened like he was there at the high noon they just did this huge charity jamboree event his band you know from all their standpoints they feel like they had played the best show of their lives Mm -hmm. and he literally left it all on the stage and he you know they all did a shot afterwards and shortly thereafter he got he went outside and he sent his girlfriend a text and said hey i'm i'm not doing good you you gotta come out take me home You know, I still haven't really digested exactly how how hard it is, how how much he meant to me. And I knew that he was a very close friend of mine, and I knew that that he was the only person I could really share some of my stories with that could understand some of the things that I go through as far as trying to help book other people and mm-hmm. and get people set up. And you know, he worked more on the recording end of things, whereas I worked more on the live end of things. But we both were into the festival side of things, and uh, the you know, to be able to have somebody that you can vent to about somebody being ungrateful about a situation where you're trying to help them and you should be able to talk about it without seeming like a dick. You know what I mean? Right. To say like, fuck that guy. I'm trying to help him. Right. But people can turn that around pretty easily. So Mm -hmm. it was nice that we were, we understood that stuff and we could have those pitch sessions and conversations about, um, things like that. So, um, you know, there's already been a, a, a great number of times that I've gone to grab my phone and call Luke and just, stop and stare at it and set it back down and you know I'm, I'm not I don't cry as much anymore but I mean I had a few moments where um that happened I just it's like I've just taken a break from work for a little bit now fuck this you know and um you know like the first whiskey onsen meeting I shortly after I I found out about him passing I was in in my house and my kids were just made a mess with breakfast and so I was out wiping the table off and it's like I took a swipe across the table and I flashed back to him coming over for our very first whiskey onsen meeting and me cleaning the table off so we could start throwing our notes down and mm-hmm. he was standing right there and it just like I mean I just fucking lost it I just started bawling and my hand's still on the rag on the table I'm just like, whoa, whoa. you know and my <laughs> yeah. kids are looking at me and they don't understand what's going on and I was just so completely overwhelmed um, with emotion and the reality of it. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's such a shame. I mean, the guy did so much to bring so many people together and 
I think in the world the way it is nowadays, he was a rare, rare gift, and we need way more people that are as selfless and focused on others as he was for no reason. The shock of it was how sudden it was. And you might be right, though we worked for the same company for a very short period of time, my interactions with him were very few, but genuinely good. He was. He well, was it didn't take long for you to get the gist of who he was and for mm-hmm. him to um, make everybody feel at home and comfortable. Yeah, that was a gift of his for sure. And so you might be right. There might have been some red flags for anybody who had known him longer or maybe intimately. If they were able to read between the lines because it sounds like he was pretty guarded. Right. He did, he he wouldn't have wanted people worrying about him. Mhm. So that's why you don't find out about these things till after the fact, you know? Mm-hmm. And you start connecting the dots and you're like that son of a bitch had some indication. Mm-hmm. Like he you know, if he would have cared more about himself than he did other people, he might still be here. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was he was you know, I the thing about Luke was that he wasn't humble. He wasn't a humble guy. He was beyond that. It was way beyond humble because he didn't even, he didn't believe he was as great as he was. And that I think is the thing about him that it was kind of the great tragedy too is like his lack of confidence in his own skill sets was so, I'm like, dude, you're killing that right now. Like, he's like, you think it sounds right? And I, I thought, and I'm like, don't change a thing, you know, like, he was very self-deprecating and, you know, he was proud and he was happy with where he was going and what he was doing, but he felt like he was low man on the totem pole all the time and he was okay with that. He wasn't striving to, to climb over anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he just had no clue how great he really was. His group had received a Best of Madison Award just before he passed away, which what sounds to be maybe categorically he he his responses were those of astonishment online so as people were congratulating him he he it wasn't as though maybe he didn't feel that they deserved it but he was just amazed that they had that gotten someone it. recognized him yeah um well and you know i i struggle sometimes with how people handle these things and I actually I mean I posted a few things but I tend to just step back and like I help coordinate um a thing in Madison it would have been the residency that Tuesday after he passed away and um it was an incredible thing but I was just kind of overwhelmed by the whole scenario and um I just kind of recoiled into myself and and you know I ended up leaving early and um but um, I feel like a lot of people unfairly get praised after they're past because people don't want to disrespect them when they want to show some respect for them maybe finally once or whatever. And so they sometimes go over the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are other people who take it as opportunity to glam on to attention to whatever to being part of that and get caught up in it and i didn't want to do that 
I didn't want to come off like I was, I don't know, benefiting from my friend's death. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, when all these people were coming up to me like, oh, thanks so much for this. And I'm like, I, I didn't do that. Um, this thing put itself together. You know, mm-hmm. it really did. And um, so anyways, the point of what I'm getting at here when you talk about them winning that award just before he passed away is that he fucking earned that. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't mm-hmm. like they're going to get more awards. There's going to be other events coming up and and people are going to recognize him and there's going to be a lot of things that, not that they don't deserve, but there will always be that kind of caveat where people could say, is it because... Right. As an honorary thing. Right. And I think that the best of Madison proves beyond a doubt that it wasn't. That any of the stuff that they are going to be getting or that they will get um, was rightfully rightfully earned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they didn't get that because he was going to be passing away. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you one thing about their band that I absolutely loved is that Every one of them was their own unique character. And how he found these people and brought them all together, I'll never really know. Um, but when I say brought them together, I don't mean put them in a room together. I mean, they are a family. Mm-hmm. Even without him now, they're a family. And um, the the visions that they shared and the, the spaces that they occupied together and the intent that they acted upon was together. Do you know what I mean? Sure. And when you watch them live, you can't help but feel that. I mean, not a lot of rock and roll bands with a trombone player. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the diversity of being able to strip down acoustic versus electric and have it sound just as amazing. Mm-hmm. The way they harmonized with each other, they were unassuming. Um, and there just wasn't, there wasn't a time that I saw them that I was like, hmm, guys, maybe work on that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. might have said it, and I was like, no, keep, stay the course. <laughs> you know? Like, but there wasn't, they were just a good band. They were an incredible band, and they respected each other. They listened to each other. Um, not just their words, but I mean, when they're on stage, you know, that dialogue thing that we talked about. They, mm-hmm. they were very in tune to each other and and they could argue with each other with respect. They could disagree. It wasn't like a big, you know, mm-hmm. bunch of bullshit where everyone was just saying, yes, 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 yes. Mm-hmm. They got to argue with each other and they did it with love like any real family would do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and they put each other in their places sometimes and came out of it stronger. And, uh, I just really miss him. When he took the job at peak, he had indicated that he was he was getting serious about his future and he needed to get serious about finances and he was tired of living hand to mouth. I talked to him at length actually about the peak thing and mm-hmm. uh, you know i had i actually met with chris and i told him that i thought luke would be better qualified than me <laughs> <laughs> he did and i didn't even at the time luke hadn't even contacted him mm-hmm. i just knew that he was going to because him and i were talking about it and 
Um, my brother Steven also was up for the job, and I was like, well, I, I don't know. Luke's looking for a career right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he posted something about it. So walk out, quit your job, and something kind of day for me. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the next day I saw Chris post something, and I was like, are you serious about the quitting your job thing? Did you really quit your job? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but he... Um, the ideas that I have is I'm working with uh, Mama Cares and the Mamas. We're going to establish the Luke Jorgensen um, Memorial Fund. And uh, the plan is with that is that we're going to continue doing, you know, we did this. So the Laura Fifth and my band were, or, or myself and Kenny from Wheelhouse, and then usually like Pat Ferguson or one other person would play uh, as the residencies at the up north in Madison. And every. December, they would do the charity jamboree that he, Luke started, mm-hmm. and it's basically people could donate money or items, clothing, food, you know, gift certificates, kind of anything. You just bring whatever and put it in the box, and um, you know. Then they started figuring out, and it wasn't just going to get thrown to like the Salvation Army. Like we picked somebody we knew that had a friend or a cousin or something like that that we could that we had a direct link to mm-hmm. that needed help house burnt down divorce whatever you know um death in the family all those sorts of things mm-hmm. and um they were operating off of tips and um but then it got to the point where i think we were just all throwing our pay and everything into the thing and just um doing it but um so we're going to continue to do that. And that's one thing for sure. Um, had a really profound impact on his fiance, Lisa as well, because she got to go with him when he made this, the delivery this last year. Mm-hmm. And maybe she conceptually understood it and got it and thought it was great, but to physically be in that space and see the re- true gratitude from those people and also the genuine, um, feeling of compassion and maybe accomplishment that Luke had in being able to provide them with that feeling of security and safety and, 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 and maybe a pause of stress for that moment at kind of a critical time of the year um, was really profound to her. It really impacted her. And uh, so we're definitely going to continue that. And then we do other, we're doing other things too. Like I've, I've talked with a couple of, uh, uh, recording studios and a few artist development scenarios that we're looking into for how we can help a couple of artists that um, maybe up and coming or even those established that need help moving on to the next level of their careers, whether that includes getting them in to record them, which was something that Luke was tirelessly doing for other people, um, or, or getting them counseling or helping them get with a press agency or you know, whatever we determine that it may be that that person or that group needs. Um, so we'll do like a scholarship type of program mm-hmm. uh, where we'll fund a project for some artist or group um, once or twice a year, depending on how we generate income and, you know. But uh, we're doing a, a festival event in October that all the proceeds to that will go into the thing as well. And then we're going to just keep We'll probably start establishing like an online donation thing and, and probably look at doing a few things 
throughout the year to a raise awareness and remind people um one of the reasons why this thing is going to be in october is that you know when someone passes away everybody comes running and people come out of the woodwork and a few weeks later there's a few people still there and months later all of these convictions that we've made in our hearts and all these things that we're going to pay attention to and change about ourselves and, and act on to help others is fucking long gone and we right. we have fallen back into our cycles and forgotten and so our thought process is that people's summer will be great as it better fucking be and then when it's done they're going to forget all about all the mm-hmm. things that led them into summer and we're going to be right there to remind them mm-hmm. um and we're going to do it often not mm-hmm. just this fall but we're going to make it an annual thing and we're going to have other outreach events throughout the year to just keep keep him at the front and remind people of what kind of a person he was and, and hopefully inspire some more people to either start to try to become that person or to continue being that person it's like our church you know we we you go every every time to reaffirm you know yourself so that's kind of uh kind of what we're working at right now perpetuating his deeds yeah i mean he what he would have done had he still been here he did so much to help people and to bring people together and to put uh, just a a genuine honest good energy into the collective consciousness of this world and we need that desperately to be able to combat all the negative energy that's constantly being fed into it and so um, hopefully we can turn the numbers and it's not, I don't want anything more than his body to physically die at this point. He's done too much and he'll live, uh, you know, with me as long as I'm alive and I will do everything I can in my capacity to, to honor that, you know. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> I've been trying really hard this last 10 minutes to not cry. So <laughs> I don't want to talk about anything anymore. <laughs> well, man, thanks for taking the time to come down here into the basement. and Yeah, thanks for having chat. me. No, but I, I didn't mumble great. and drool too much. Not that I saw for a guy who had his wisdom tooth pulled earlier today. I am concerned about dry socket now. I I didn't even think about it until you said it. And I'm like, oh, man, now i got him talking for three hours. I got I got gauze jammed in there and... Yeah, this thing's this isn't gonna dry out today, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, I want you to know I appreciate you. And I'm glad that you were here. Thank you, sir. This was great. Likewise. This is great. And I've I have always cherished our friendship. So uh you through the editing process this part might not make it. <laughs> <laughs> right on. But we've had it, so there we go. All right. Cheers. Thanks, man. Thank you. So this chicken, I am chicken. So this episode of the podcast contained a lengthy interview with Derek Romnerace, but informative. I can't wait for you to hear it. I haven't heard. Let me take that back. I was here the night that you had the interview. I could hear Derek talking 
through the floor upstairs because he has a very commanding and booming voice. But I really didn't hear much or any of the interview, so I am looking forward to it. It was a real challenge. Part of what I wanted to do was have an interview with Derek that showed a little bit more than just the Derek that everybody knows. And I I think that we got into that some. The challenge is that he is involved in so many things. So it's really hard to narrow it down to having a few conversations regarding some things because they just lead from one thing into the next into the next. I really felt good about getting into some of his earlier things and talking with him about Hooch and that band and how he got started in music. We talked a little bit about his family. We talked about his dad and his dad played guitar and that's pretty interesting. Actually, his dad still plays guitar and I found that to be pretty interesting. And we talked about his role as a father and that was really nice. He's a he's a very warm person and maybe you don't always get that from somebody who's a performance artist because there's the person on the stage and then there's the person off the stage. And as much as people like to try and be genuine with both, it's not always possible. When you're on stage, I might have even said this in the interview, I'll have to go back and listen and I always listen to interviews over and again. People listen to music at home and people go to see live music. So you have to give them a little something to see when you're on the stage because there's no sense in them coming out to see you if it's nothing different than what they hear. They want to see a show. They want to see you perform. And it puts you in a position sometimes to be somebody other than who you are. In some cases, you amplify who you are. And in other cases, it's a persona that's totally different than than who you are on an everyday. As you're speaking of Derek, I'm trying to remember, I've known Derek a long time. Did I know him before you? I don't recall if that's the case. Probably not. Probably not. But I do remember, and I know people are probably sick of hearing about Kettle and Cup, but so much of this does kind of focus around that and our connections that we made through that. Um, but I do remember when I believe I'm the one that asked him to come and perform at the shop. We had discussed it together regarding a regular performance, and he performed the first Wednesday of every month. And you were the one who came up with the idea, and you were the one who approached him about it. Yeah, and I remember the other. I remember one of the moments that really sticks out to me with Derek and showing his empathy and compassion for others was when he had you perform here in Reedsburg while your daughter was in the hospital ill. And he knew full well that it would be a challenge and difficult for you to come and do that performance, but he also knew how important it was for you to do that. And that evening when we showed up, he was very gracious, very empathetic, and very concerned, and really just put out some awesome good vibes for her to get better. To be fair, he did ask a number of times whether or not I was able to make it 
how I felt about it. He didn't push me to do it, and he would have been good with whatever response I had given him. But you're right. It was important for him to to do that because it did get my mind off of everything that was happening at that moment. Right. We did not talk about that. He and I did not talk about that. In fact, we haven't talked about that night since then. Really? If I remember correctly. Yeah. I don't think that we ever have. We've shared the stage a number of times, actually, and, and that particular night hasn't really come up. I don't know whether or not it was just because he plays so many gigs or it's just one of those things where it happened and just kind of this unspoken we did it and it was an important night for me though Mm -hmm. too Mm -hmm. it really was well now when he listens to this podcast he'll know how important it was sure you're you're right about that the challenge with something like this is that it can sometimes be a little bit of an inside conversation so a lot of, I know this person, you know that person, we had this together, we did that together. And hopefully we were able to transcend that a little bit to something that's informative to people outside of the Derek and Alex hour that we that we have, or Derek and Alex two hours. Three hours, I think. Well, it ended up being over three hours. And then when the mics were off, for those of you listening at home, when the mics were off, there was another hour after that where we just sat and talked. And I'm at this point, in doing the podcast where I'm interviewing people who are friends or at least people that I know well enough to be able to call up or email and say, come on down and and let's have a talk. So it's easy for me to sit down and talk with them because of common ground that we have as this podcast grows. Hopefully I will be able to have more conversations with people that I don't know and begin to learn and understand and get acquainted with people outside of my circle. The words that you just used to describe yourself in this podcast, I find really interesting. Why do you say that? The words that the Derek and Alex hour, the friendships, the ease to have conversation with people, so interesting to me because you are so shy and introverted when we go to public places and events. But when you're here in the basement doing our little podcast, it something happens and you're able to just have these long conversations. And it's it's a cool thing to get to see from my side of things. But knowing you and knowing how shy and introverted you can be, it's it's an interesting concept. Many times throughout my life, I've encountered people who have a different opinion of me than I do of myself. And I think that's normal for a number of people. When I was in high school, to those of you listening, I grew up in Chicago that's no secret between in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school I transferred from a high school that had freshman class of 1500 kids moving here to Reedsburg Wisconsin to a high school that had 300 kids and it was not a very easy transition 
I've always been somewhat of a, a shy person and, and a bit of a loner. And it has been shocking to me to have talked to people since who had a different perspective of me, not so much in that I was a bad person, but that some people felt that I was aloof or conceited because I didn't talk. And part of the reason, not part of, the reason that I didn't talk was because I was painfully shy. And it's funny, other people in my family would not necessarily agree with that statement. In fact, we've had this conversation with my mom who said, Mm -hmm. you weren't shy, but like you, she knows me in a different way than other people do. Mm -hmm. I like to think that I'm approachable, but I have found over the years that I'm not. And I think that it's unfortunate because I really like talking to people and I really like spending time with people. And when I'm in public, I really do enjoy those moments. But I am terribly shy in situations that I don't have control over. I think that's not uncommon. And I think that there are a lot of people in this world who can relate. (laughs) But it doesn't make things easy. I love you and I am very open with you. And that is helpful to me when we do go places we joke, we joke between the two of us, and the joke has been shared with a few others. But when we go places, and I'm going to use Art in the Dark, which I'm sure you and Derek talked about in the interview. A little bit. Um, one of the things that he is involved in, when we go to an Art in the Dark event, you usually find a corner in the back of the room that you don't move from. And I'm like the little social butterfly and I see different people in the room and I go talk to them and I come back and check on you. And then I flutter over to the next person and go talk to them. And then I come back and check on you. And then I do the same thing over and over. And we joke about that, but yes, you are painfully shy and you also don't like to be pulled out onto stage in just a random event. You're fine with being on stage when you are in control of what that looks like and how that's going to happen. But in a crowd situation where somebody gets pulled out of the crowd, you're as terrified as I am. It's not easy for me. It's strange that I have this, and it's related to, of course, my anxiety. It's strange that I have the things that I do for fun and for a profession, which involve putting myself out there because, and I think what happens is I exhaust myself in that. I exhaust myself in putting myself out there for my job and when playing music and speaking in front of people for things at like ArtsLink and and a few other of the things that we're involved in. And I think that exhausts me so that when I am done with that, I'm happy to retreat. And that sort of thing is 
I don't know if it's healthy or not, but that's just the dynamic that I have. I, I happen to think about this in regards to Derek. He's never been to our house before. And I maybe should have given him a tour of the house. I didn't really do it, and I probably should have. He came upstairs into the living room, and, and we were talking while I was doing some stuff with the memory card on the recorder because it was full because we talked so much. <laughs> and I didn't really give him like a, a wave around and, hey, you know, this is our living room and look at this and look at that. And we have plenty of things to look at. But this is just kind of our retreat, and I've always I've always kept that as it is. And so, right. We've always said that, that this is our safe haven or our retreat when we're tapped out from being on, as we say. The other thing that I suffer from, if we can have this be all about me here. Well, I was also going to share how painfully, I wouldn't say shy, but terrified I am of being in front of people to speak, to sing, to do anything. I like to think that I'm an okay singer in the shower, but to get in front of someone would, I, I can't. I'm so painfully terrified. But the podcast is okay with me because I'm just looking at you and whoever's listening. I don't, I guess I, I don't see their faces or their reactions. So then it makes it okay and safe for me. We have maybe five listeners. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping someday it'll be amazing and well, international. If, and <laughs> if that becomes the case, I don't want you to get scared. So just continue to think that we only have five listeners. Well, and I'm just going to continue to just have you to look at during these podcasts, which is fine by me, because thank you for saying that you love me on this podcast. I love you as well. I will never hesitate to tell anybody that I love you. That's oh not boy, a here we go. It's going to be the Alex and Lori mushy podcast. <laughs> no, we won't let it get too mushy. The only other thing I was going to say that I suffer from, and I don't know that there's any sort of uh, terminology for this, is that I really only recognize people based on the context in which I know them. Mm-hmm. So if I see a person, let's say they work at the gas station, and I only ever see them at the gas station. If I see them outside of the gas station, let's say I'm at the bank and they're in line at the bank also, I maybe don't recognize them. You know, I am with you on that. Matter of fact, just, I think two days ago, I had someone that I was speaking with them because I know them. I know their face. I recognize them. I could not think of their name. So please, if you're listening and I don't introduce you to somebody else in the circle, it's not because I'm being rude. It's truly I'm embarrassed because I can't remember names. I'm so bad with that. And I try so hard to remember. But so I'm apologizing now. If that has happened in the past, it will likely happen in the future. Don't be angry with me. Just introduce yourself. I will have people come up to me at the grocery store and and know me by first name and say hello Mm -hmm. and ask me something pertaining to me specifically. And unless they reference something that that I share with them, which how is somebody from the gas station going to do that, of course? Like, have you filled up lately or something like that? How's that gas running in your car? Exactly. (laughs) Unless somebody references something that is pertain just to them 
it's not uncommon for me to say hello and I'm, I'm friendly enough. There's no doubt about it. But then later turn to you or somebody else who I might be there with and say, is that somebody from how do we know them? You know, mm-hmm. and thankfully, you know, a number of people. Or at least I should say, thankfully, you are able to recognize a number of people that I'm not. But I have had people who are family members of friends who have come to see the band or who have been in the coffee shop. I can't tell you how many times well, I could tell you. I'm sure that you can say the same thing. How many times people have said, I loved your coffee shop. And I'll say, oh, you've you've been there. I was there every week or <laughs> I was I always came for lunch on Mondays. Well, and, we've learned to not say those things because, yes. you know, it's kind of like looking next to you and saying, when are you expecting? And they're not expecting. Right. There's just taboo things you don't say. So I guess since we have this public forum to be able to say so, I would like to publicly apologize to anybody who I might have snubbed. It has not been intentional. And I also want to say for most people who might be listening. Five of them. For for the five that I know who are definitely listening. (laughs) I am an approachable person. You can come up to me and say hello, have a seat, buy me a drink. I'm okay with that. (laughs) We'll sit down and we'll talk about whatever. The topics of discussion are usually the following. Music, politics, religion. All the taboo things. Well, music isn't taboo. (laughs) Nutrition. I'll talk about all of these things. I don't have any problem. So come up and and chat with me. If I got to go, I'll let you know. I can be pretty blunt about that. But part of the reason why I don't approach other people is because I am shy and I am afraid that I'm going to intrude. So, and that might be why people are afraid to come and talk to me too. So it's okay. It's okay. Folks, he's still mysterious to me. So I think I'm a pretty good guy. You are a pretty good guy. I think that, that I'm well-rounded enough to have conversations with people. You are. And... If I need to go or if I'm uncomfortable, I'm a grown-up and I can probably do that. (laughs) Although I am nervous about the day that I have somebody here in the studio talking with them and want them out of the house. (laughs) I know that's going to happen. It's not going to happen initially because these are people whom we know and they're friends. You'll likely text me and I'll have to put on some sort of mom voice mom code thing that I'll have to I don't know we need to go there's an emergency oh gosh I shouldn't give away what I might do because then they won't leave (laughs) that's true that's true they they'll they'll look at you and and they'll ask wait a minute just trying to brush me out of here no 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 not at all (laughs) I'll text you I'll text you a code it'll be something like clean sweep something like that (laughs) You'll know what it means. Uh, we can't give away too much here. No, that's true. That's true. Okay. So, yes, you apologized. I think I apologized a little bit before. I will ap- apologize again. We really, honestly, appreciated everybody who ever came into our life, whether it was through the coffee shop or otherwise. And we genuinely care about the relationships that we have with other people, whether it's just an acquaintance 
or it's an intimate relationship, we care about that. So if we don't see you or we we don't wave or we don't recognize you, it's we're just lame. That's it. We're just lame and we'll just chalk it up to that. We're, I try and I'm always trying to strive to be better about remembering your name. I will remember your face, but not always your name. So please forgive us. And the other thing is I can be kind of absorbed. So if I'm in a public space and I walk past you, it's not because you're not important to me. I might be only thinking of one thing at that moment, like what aisle is the mac and cheese in? Where is the pizza? Oh, man, I already know where the pizza is, no matter where it's at. I've, I've got a, I've got a, like a pizza. Beacon. Sp- yeah, like a pizza spidey A pizza spidey beacon. Sense. <laughs> a pizza spidey sense. A pizza beacon. There's pizza around and he's like, just goes into his zone. I can't help it. It's, it's, there's like a, it's a law of attraction between me and pizza. It's like a complete meal. Well, it is definitely all of the food groups in one. It is. It's, it's got your bread with the crust. It's got your vegetable with the tomato sauce. Or toppings too. Toppings, yeah, yeah. correct. Dairy. Dairy, definitely with the cheese. Dairy. Dairy. We got the dairy. We got the cheese. The Wisconsin dairy. And, uh, you know, for those who eat it, there's meat. Yes. I don't eat it. I don't need it. But if you want it, you can have it. Well, I don't need it, but I don't pick the sausage off of the pep- off the pizza, though, either. I am aware. Yes. That being said, while we're in, you know, while we're in this uh, in this moment of apologizing and and, you know, uh, I'm going to apologize, uh, apologizing and lameness, which seems to be the the topic here of this wrap up. I'm going to apologize to you because I made it appear as though I thought you were lame for thinking that the walk of life by dire straits was actually performed by Bruce Springsteen. Wait a minute. We need to back up for a second. We need to back up for a second today earlier, but I'm in the middle of this apology, but but wait, because people don't understand what you're, we have to give them a little bit of information so they understand this apology. So earlier today we were in the vehicle Mm -hmm. and my husband who I love likes to quiz me on music and there's a very long story to why i missed the entire 90s decade of music but this was pre-90s yes it was but but usually when he quizzes me it's on 90s musicians and i'm really lame with that sorry to say because i have grown to really love some of the 90s music that you love and that you have exposed me to but this was an older song, and... It was The Walk of Life by Dire Straits. And he loves to quiz me, okay? So we're listening to this. And I'm sorry for any of you that are Dire Straits fans, and don't hate me for this, but honest to God, I thought Bruce Springsteen was the artist all these years my entire life, I have sang the words to that song in my car, in my shower, thinking it was Bruce Springsteen. And he's looking at me like, I'm crazy. He's looking at me like, are you serious? 
Those of you who are familiar with Reedsburg, the song was on the radio. It was not the Reedsburg channel, by the way. The song was on the radio, and we were at the second bridge that crosses the Baraboo River. We had this conversation wherein I found out that she thought Bruce Springsteen did this song. We crossed the bridge, went down Main Street to True Value, went into the store, purchased the items that we needed, stopped and played with the kittens or tried to, they were sleeping, purchased the items that we <laughs> that we needed, walked out into the parking lot, drove towards our home, which most of you know where that is. We were on 8th Street and Dewey, right by Pineview, and Born in the USA came on. And at that point, I heard it and I thought, well, I could see now where it's possible to right? confuse the two. Right? So I'm not crazy. I never said that you were crazy, but during that entire time period from the bridge <laughs> through True Value, you were thinking it. <laughs> I thought to myself, how is it possible for anybody <laughs> to to think that that was Bruce Springsteen? <laughs> and then when I listened to Born in the USA in that close proximity from Walk of Life, I thought, okay, I could see it now. And with me it. singing along to both songs, it made more sense. Well, because yes. my interpretation of them sounded very similar. So I apologized in the vehicle, though then, just as now, you thought that what I said was that you were crazy. And I did not say that you were crazy. I'm, not, I'm saying that in a, I'm not saying that in a literal sense. I'm saying that as a cliche. Right. But I am going to publicly apologize because it was, it, it, I didn't think that there's any way that you can confuse the two, that you could possibly <laughs> confuse the two. All this time. And I was just, I was just flabbergasted. <laughs> and then when I heard it, I thought, okay, well, I'll be fair about it. So, yes, I apologize that I thought you were lame. And the next time that Dire Straits comes on with that particular song, I will probably still think it's Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> so we're going to wrap this up. And I want to throw a big thank you out there for Derek Romneris for coming in. And despite the fact that, that we did talk for quite a while, he really is a busy guy and doesn't really have that opportunity. And Derek is one of those guys, too, who may seem like he's too busy for other people, but he sure does manage to make the time. So I would agree. And I, I want to thank him. And I haven't listened to the interview yet, and I'm looking forward to it. I just want to thank Derek for all all the times that he did play in our coffee shop and all of the times that he's included us in different events and the exposure that he gave to our shop in trying to get people to come and be a part of the scene that we had going there. I really, truly appreciate that. And not just Eric, but his entire family, um, They've all been so wonderful to us, and and I appreciate that. I agree. So until next time, please stop and visit the Kettle and Cup podcast Facebook page, facebook.com slash kettle and cup, K-E-T-T-L-E-N as in Nancy C-U-P. It's just the letter N, not N as in Nancy typed in. No, that's a lot of typing. <laughs> kettle and Cup. Stop by, give us some suggestions, ask some questions. We're open. We're available. That was what we just said. 
So please feel free to do so. So Until next time. Thank you for listening. I'm Alex. I'm Lori. And we'll catch you next time. Bye.